This podcast is hosted by Chris Finkston and Spencer Oliver. They are both experienced paramedics. They've done everything from 911 ground ambulance to volunteer fire department work and are both currently flight paramedics. This podcast reviews scenarios based on real calls run by real out-of-hospital clinicians. Details are changed to protect the privacy of those involved and to present educational opportunities to the listener. This podcast is EMS 2020. Hey, everybody. Welcome to EMS 2020. Wow. The pause is like a gift that you just put everywhere at I know. this point well but i just change it wherever you never know when it's gonna be is it gonna be between the 20 and the 20 is it gonna be you know just like right up front like i did there yeah i, I like to keep people guessing i like to keep the show fresh you know, and that's how i do I'm it gonna, i just change where i pause the i'm intro. gonna make a suggestion next time what you should do is you should mm-hmm. just have like it right at the beginning like the pause before you start speaking and so it's just like that, dead air for <laughs> i don't know a couple seconds and then hey everybody welcome to ems 2020 yeah, here it is. Boom. Okay, that's that is where I could put it. Hey guys, we have so as you guys have probably seen on the social media, I put out a little blurb. <laughs> the social media. Um, the social media. Uh, yeah, on our Facebook. Which, by the way, if you want to follow us on social media, you should. Every episode gets its own post where you can comment your likes and dislikes, which is actually going to contribute to a good portion of today's listener feedback section. Uh, but yeah, we're on Facebook at EMS twenty slash twenty, Instagram at EMS twenty twenty show, and if you want your call to be featured on this show, which apparently so so many of you do, uh, it's uh, EMS twenty twenty uh, podcast at gmail dot com. Yeah, um, but. On social media, I posted a quick video basically saying this is going to be one hell of a call. Uh, And it is. So, yeah, it's one of those. Normally, I go into these things perfectly blind, um, but I couldn't uh, go in completely blind because Spence and I like talked about this one a little bit. So I don't know the details. So I'm going to be writing along with most of this with you guys. Um, But I do know a few things. I know it's a huge call. I know this is going to be a long episode. I know there's an airway problem. I know there might be a scene safety thing coming up, if I recall our discussion correctly. Uh, Yeah. And uh, Spencer's convinced that at some point I'm going to rant. And he knows me well enough to where that's probably true. I I mean, that's kind of a given. (laughs) Like, I could bring up something like benign, like, like, oh, man, acorns. And like, Chris will go on a rant. (laughs) That's... So that that was an okay. easy one. <laughs> All right, but since you brought up acorns really quick, <laughs> I just <laughs> Oh boy. Um yeah, so there is that. So let's do this because we have such a hell of an episode. We're going to try and keep the pace going. No guarantee though, you do know what you tuned into. Um but squirrel really quick Let's, and speaking exactly. of fucking speaking squirrels, of squirrels. <laughs> speaking of fucking squirrels and acorns, see now, now you're just come on squirrels. They hide acorns. What are you trying to do to me? So let's move into our listener questions and comments on the previous episodes uh, section. Two episodes ago, three episodes ago, two episodes. I don't know. We had a call where a paramedic basically took a coffee addict that wasn't Spencer uh, to the hospital who was having chest pain and the guy ends up coding on the way in. And the paramedic was kind of faced with, all right, do I pull over and work this code here, but I'm only four minutes away from the hospital or do I just do chest compression until I get to the hospital? There's some more in-depth discussion. Uh, the name of the episode is called Venti Size 
venti-sized suckage. So I would suggest you go listen to that. There's a lot of details. Um, but yeah, that uh, it'd be kind of crazy. So we asked you guys, hey, like, what would you do? Would you guys proceed to the hospital with only four minutes to go just doing chest compressions? Or would you pull over and work the code? And you guys responded a lot. And so we're going to read some of those responses because Spence and I were a little bit conflicted and we saw merits for, you know, going kind of either way. So so we're going to start with Stephen. So Stephen, in the event of sudden cardiac arrest, I would have immediately started compressions and advised my driver to pull over, notify dispatch and get to the back and help. Uh, now that we are two, immediately place the pads on and rhythm check. Shockable? Then do so. If not, PA Sicily, then start two-person CPR until more help arrives. If the service had a Lucas or an auto pulse, then immediately apply. Yeah. Obviously, things would be very based on rhythm and response. Yeah, I love the Lucas or auto pulse. That, that is awesome. Yep. Uh, but continue with the basics of any CPR resuscitation protocol. Uh, get effective chest compressions going. Immediate defibrillation, cardioversion, pacing, whatever's needed. Mechanical or pit crew CPR. Suction and advanced airway. Igel or king. ETT takes a long uh, time to set up and drop. Uh, and when time is everything with a crew of two, that can be a problem. I'm kind of summarizing there. It's not exactly what he wrote. Uh, plus, uh, easy to extubate if Rosk and patient regains consciousness. So our service would sedate an RSI if we need to switch to ETT with Rosk. Uh, so establish IV IO, IO access. A minimum of two to three rounds of epi, one to ten before before leaving the scene for the hospital. Uh, treat the same as on the scene in a home response uh, for an arrest. So that is that kind of, yeah. and then it kind of goes on to talk a little bit more about his agency. Um, yeah, and and uh, I'm gonna say Steven brings up some really good points here and a lot of people brought up some good points. Uh, and kind of the general gist is, and I kind of agree, and this is just kind of the, with what everyone said, kind of the gist I'm getting is like, hey, like, the same code's going to be run in the ER, so we might as well start it here. But anyway, so then Anna says, I personally had my partner pull over and do CPR while I got the pads on uh, for no better reasoning than that's what AHA says to do. Mm. However, I could see myself doing the exact same thing as the medic in the moment. Great episode, and thanks to the medic who shared their story. And and emphasize that again. Yeah. Thank you to the paramedic that, that shared this story. We get a lot of call submissions that are like, look how awesome I did. And that's an easy one to share. Don't get me wrong. Uh, it's awkward. We're like, hey, you didn't do that awesome. Awesome. But um, anyway, so <laughs> that does happen occasionally. Huge thanks to the medic that shared that with us. Um, it's it, it takes a lot to be like, hey, I think I, I did the best I could, but maybe there's there's some room. That this could have been better. And to share it with us, uh, that's kind of an awesome feat. And it's really kind of the hallmark of a paramedic that that's the kind of paramedic you want showing up on your scene. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Robert said, pull over, work the code, call for help. I would also advocate doing a thorough assessment on scene that included me asking this question. Is there a high likelihood this patient gets worse during transport? That is a good internal question to ask, by the way. I do like that. Mm. If your instincts even remotely say yes, grab a firefighter uh, for a rider. Doesn't need to be a medic. You're going to need more hands. And in this case, you can keep driving to the hospital. Just my humble opinion. It's a good opinion at that. Good yeah. move, Robert. Uh, so... We have another comment that is, this is a little bit longer one. This is actually an email we got. And this is from a listener who listens to us frequently, has been listening for quite a while. And we always look forward to the things that they have to share with us. Uh, so that being oh, yeah, said. Oh, yeah, true. Definitely. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll, we'll keep them anonymous. But uh, here it is. 
So situation as we understand it, this is what they say. Uh, we have a patient with a presumed occlusive myocardial infarct, uh, OMI, who decides that this poor medic doesn't have enough going on uh, and then decides that, hey, pulse optional presentation to the local facility would be beneficial. Uh, side note, these situations are never fun. That's very true. Being four minutes out from the hospital is a really bad spot for a patient to arrest. It's just far enough out that you feel like you should be able to do some stuff, but it's too close to actually get that list you think you should do actually done. That's an amazing way of putting that. Think about what you want to get done and now consider how long it would take to actually do those things. Do you remove your patient's shirt when doing a 12 lead every time? Uh, where are you placing your defib pads? Are the seatbelts on the stretcher going to hinder your ability to place them in the anterior posterior position if that is your choice? Which, by the way, there is some data that shows anterior posterior positioning is superior in defibrillation. Uh, I think it would be. That's not what they say. That's what I say. Uh, I think it would be fair to say that applying pads and attaching the therapy cable would take about two minutes alone. And I also think that's fair, by the way, Spence. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. Personally, I would skip the CPR and focus my attention on getting the defib pads uh, and delivering a shock, which I think that was the route I wanted to go. Uh, attempting to perform CPR, CPR. Uh, well, I mean, kind of. Yeah. If you're <laughs> if you're doing it right and they wake up in the middle of CPR. Uh, anyway, exactly. Uh, in the back of a moving ambulance with a mechanical device is something that we should leave in the bad old days. It really exposes us EMS to significant risk while at best performing somewhat adequate CPR. Ask yourself this question. Do you really think that you can perform CPR uh, as good moving down the road as compared to when you are stationary? If I can ever find a funding uh, a funding source, that's a study that I would want to do. Uh, quick side note before I continue on with this uh, with this email. Uh, I agree. This is a study that I too would want to do. That would be really interesting. Uh, I've done a lot of CPR in the back of an ambulance and I will say we do have some data on that in the sense that we do have accelerometers, but nothing that I've seen in an amazing study. I know at the agency I've worked at, uh, I haven't heard anything, even after we've been measuring uh, the quality of chest compressions with accelerometers, I've never heard anything that it actually gets less while transporting. Um, but I don't know off the top of my head if there has been a study that uh, that looks at that. And I think this listener brings up a really good point. We haven't studied it. And we should, because that could be very revealing. Because Spence, you and I both know, uh, there's what we think goes on and then we study something and it's like, oh, that's what actually happens. So anyway, yeah, that is a really good point. I would love to see that studying uh, as well. Uh, that being said, uh, I am not your funding source for that. So good luck there. So uh, anyway, <laughs> continuing on with the I, email. I, can, I got five on it. I'll put it. Yeah, I got I got five on it. Yeah, I got five on it, too. All right. Uh, in this case, we can presume that the patient is well oxygenated at the time of the arrest, so there is no need to prime the pump uh, to improve successful defibrillation. Only after the defib is, is performed is CPR going to be necessary. Uh, the following may depend on what is available in your area as well as the mentality of the receiving facilities. As for stopping and calling for additional resources, uh, in my opinion, this is a risky call. At the time of the arrest, the inertia of the call is get to the hospital. Once you stop and start working the arrest, it is very easy for that inertia to switch to gotta work the code here. Once you call for that second resource to assist, you are mentally switching yourself to a stay here mentality unless you are very focused on continuing to move forward. Given this is the provider's first time having this experience, it likely will be very easy to move back to the familiar work it until you get a pulse back. This patient needs to get the artery opened. Unfortunately, 
That is not something we can really do in the rig. Uh, what does the hospital offer in this case that EMS cannot possibly moving into the cath lab despite the patient still in arrest facility dependent thrombolytics administered in the ED again facility dependent to be fair not a common call for an ERMD to make but it is but it is a potential tough call for this provider in this case good work couple points to consider above but none are intended as a criticism of their actions thank you for sharing this case with us so that we can all learn something from your misfortune uh that's it's a very yeah, good way to put that's it. That's a great thing. Uh, hey, yeah. I, I want to say that I want to highlight one really important piece here that I think is really important, and it's not often appreciated, or at least not appreciated in textbooks. The inertia of a call is, oh mm-hmm. my god, such a real thing. You isn't it though? You and he brings up a really good point because we do have two competing values. You got to get the patient to the hospital because they have you have identified that they have an occlusive MI and they need a cath lab and or thrombolytics and or, you know, like something to resolve that, which we cannot. But they also need good CPR so that they can fucking get there and get. You right. know, and so, like, you have these competing values because mm-hmm. you don't want to delay something that they you know like is already, you know, potentially killing them. Uh, <laughs> to try and get, you know, keep them alive. So I, I yeah. think he, he, how he threads this needle is perfect. Like y- you might be able to stay you know, like to kind of commit to the code, but still keep moving. But there is a real possibility that you fall into the trap of significantly delaying to run this code um, and therefore like, you know, preventing them from getting to a potential cath lab on time right so i i i love that i love that dynamic that got brought up because that is oh yeah that is so ems and it's not something you find in a textbook so thank no, you it's not it's not the whole reason we do this show right there because it's, it's just not shit you find in a textbook um, i will add to this is that no one's going to a cath lab while coded this is uh, true it, yeah so so the code does need to be resolved so yeah so I, i'm gonna leave it at this is based on all your guys's feedback Still, there's arguments to be made either way. So on one hand, yeah, you you want to get them to the hospital because they do need that open. And the moment they get that pulse back, they need to be in that cath lab. But on the other hand, they need to be recessed. Yeah. And the sooner they're recessed, the better. So, yeah, it, it's uh, it is a hard call. But thank you, everyone, for all your feedback. You've had so much feedback. Um, one more thing before we get started into today's fucking monster of a call. Uh, don't forget, head on over to guardiancme.com, drop your email address uh, there. Guardiancme.com is going to be a free CE platform at $0 to get your continuing education uh, that you need to maintain your certification. And guess what? You'll be able to get continuing education just by listening to EMS 2020. Yeah. So pretty amazing stuff there. And fuck, you'll get a lot of CE for this particular episode because I have a feeling it's going to go along. But uh, anyway, that aside, uh, yeah, guardiancme.com. Head on over there, drop your email. We will not spam your email address. The moment the platform is up, which I'm hearing should be soon, we will send you an email and you can start getting your continuing education for free through guardiancme.com. With that, Spence, let's do it. Okay. All right. So today's episode is brought to us by Grumpy Bear. A three-year, <laughs> right? I know. This is what I call my children when they have a problem. 
It's brought to us by uh, Chris's child, uh, who's somehow a three-year paramedic, six years prior as an EMT. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) He's five, by the way. The one, the one that gets the grumpier moniker the most is five. So it's been a really hard five years, though. Uh, He's he's managed to sneak sneak about six years of uh, experience as an EMT in those five years somehow. But yeah, yeah. he drinks a lot. So uh, yeah, no, they they do have quite a bit of uh, like a variety of experience within those six years uh, that they worked as an EMT prior. And again, they're a three-year medic. Uh, They were an EMT for a rural service before signing on with an urban fire department while obtaining their paramedic. And eventually they moved to this very, very, very large urban sprawl and started working. Wait, how many varies? Very, 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 very. Very, very large. That's Uh, huge. Yeah, very, very huge. Uh, yeah, they moved to a private ambulance company and worked there as a paramedic. Uh, Grumpy describes himself as a bad call magnet and reported that the partners at the Carolot Kingdom Ambulance Service uh, actually <laughs> the Carolot Kingdom. Oh, are you getting the reference now? I think you are. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I am. All right. It's a 80s cartoon, by the way, for the people who don't know. Uh, Care Bears. Boom. Uh, nice. So. Uh, the, the other employees tend to like sign up for shifts with, uh, Grumpy Bear when they're on because they quote, need some good calls. So this is the, uh, this is what they've uh, developed for themselves. Their partner on this, uh, on tonight's adventure, Cheer Bear is their paramedic partner on the rig and they have about a year of experience as a paramedic. Cheer Bear is described as a bright partner and one who will likely have Doctor before their name at some point in the future. Dr. Cheer Bear. So, uh, yeah. But uh, let's discuss the system. So today's system is a bit of a doozy uh, to cover. So <laughs> bear with me. Uh, we'll no, start. No. With, yeah, we'll start with this. <laughs> <That> st- is. <laughs> We'll start with the standard stuff. The Carolot Ambulance Company is a private company, receives a large amount of public funding, and has a large regulatory oversight board. They serve a very large urban uh, sprawl in the Carolot Kingdom. Uh, probably have about like 300 employees. And at the time of the call, they had somewhere between like 8 to 12 cars on at night. And that is what our paramedic is working night shifts and roughly like 25 on during the day. They use a system status model with posting plans and the shifts are described as pretty busy with about nine to 10 transports for every 12 hour shift. Grumpy Bear, oh boy. Grumpy Bear says like, yeah, if I saw an hour of post time, uh, that was actually a good shift. Oh, wow. And well, typically they staff medic EMT. There are occasional like medic medic crews uh, like the one for this call. Um, the fire service who participates on medical calls is a bit of a mixed bag. They are an ALS service and some of the medics are really helpful and others not so much. Um, in this system, though, when the ambulance medic arrives on scene, they do become the default PIC. So there's so that. the yeah. whole default PIC thing, is that like a must like where the ambulance paramedic walks in and they and they immediately like transfer the PIC role or is it more like a back pocket kind of thing? Like, hey, like because I've worked in systems where there are default statuses like that, where once the patient, for example, gets to the back of the ambulance and the ambulance paramedic is PIC, but we kind of keep it as like a back pocket kind of thing. So there's already a fire PIC who's doing a great job. There's no reason to transfer like clinically. There's Mm. no reason to transfer PIC. It's just going to cause a hitch. So is this something that must happen or is it more like a back pocket kind of thing to like, hey, if this does go south, I technically have the ability to be like, hey, look, 
um, I, I'm going to take this over. It's my prerogative per protocol. I'm going to do it. Do you, I, do you know? I, I don't. It's a weird question. No, no, no. That's, I, I know exactly the dynamic you're talking about, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and I, to be honest, I don't know. Um, yeah, I really don't know. So, uh, but yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. So, yeah, sweet deal. Yeah. Um, there. There are a variety of hospitals, including two level one trauma centers in the region. And while there are some like fun details shared about like the two hospitals and none of them really play into tonight's call. So uh, we're moving on. But let's definitely talk about a few system things which might pertain to this call. So one of the things to know is this service has a materials division which restocks and resets the ambulance for the next oncoming crew. The crew's responsibility each shift is to arrive to work, clock in, fetch their stretcher with the restock kits that are set on it, go to the ambulance after the medic gets assigned their narcotics pouch, uh, and then like check the make sure the kits are good, put it all away and get on the road all within 15 minutes of the time they clocked in. So they hmm. and that is very much from uh, Grumpy's description, like they are held to the T on the time. So gotcha. Big There's pressure. some supervisor out there chasing them to get it done. <laughs> there is there. Chris is out there chasing them down. Like get out on the I road. Have, yeah. <laughs> hey, I, I have been. And you know, it's kind of nice to hear this like from other systems uh, because it, just to know that it's not just the system that I was a supervisor in. <laughs> but, yeah. I, I've been, I've been that get on the air supervisor. That's, that's been me. That's fair. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, hey, me too, man. Me too. Additionally. Yeah, but you weren't that good at it. Th- that's true. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Additionally, this service does have the option for intubation, but Chris, they don't carry any paralytics. They do have an RSI protocol and it's this. Give the patient 0.3 milligrams per kilogram of automate up to 40 milligrams. Then intubate the patient using the DL scope, be successful, and then give the patient five milligrams for said post intubation with standing orders for one more dose of five milligrams for said later. Should really quick, guys. DL is direct laryngoscopy as opposed to VL, which is video laryngoscopy. So DL is just your standard scope where you're just you're looking directly at their cords through their mouth. Perfect. Thank you for clarifying that. Should Sorry. should success not be obtained on that first attempt. This service and the medical director want the crew to go right to the IGEL. Um, there is a huge push by the service to avoid intubation when possible and just use the IGEL. There's some speculation on why this is. Grumpy cited like a really low first pass success rate with intubation. And it sounds like their medical director has some concerns about paramedics, paralytics, and the clinical education department is really focused on the time factor for calls. But again, we don't know the whole story here because like I didn't talk to anyone from the division and I'm not yet famous enough to like, just go get right on through to the medical director. Yeah. Like, yeah. Hey, but you will be Monday. Um, yeah. Did you say one day or Monday? <laughs> Either or one day. Monday is a one day. So. Well, I, I, I just, I, Cause if you said Monday, you're like, yeah, it's going to happen Monday. Like boom, baller status. <laughs> um, like, like, you know, when, when you're going to be that famous, like, nah, this is my goal. This one's happening. Um, <clears throat> so, I'm going to save my comment. Like I have a reason that I have a feeling Mm. that you are fleshing. You're fleshing that out for a reason. Mm -hmm. I already have thoughts on, on everything you just said. And I'm going to say right now, they're not good thoughts, All right, but we'll we'll get it in them later because I, I I just have a strong feeling about what. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Perfect. Well, yeah. uh, I'm excited to hear it, uh, especially in the context of this call. So let's talk about the call. It's almost 2 a.m. 
on a warm evening. See, I let go. I, I, I no, did it. The- <laughs> I approximated. Let it go. You froze into this. You, you approximated the time. <laughs> nice. Good job, Elsa. <laughs> now give us the rest of this call from your ice castle. Perfect. All right. So Grumpy and Cheerbear find themselves uh, posted at their castle in the kingdom of Carolot. Again, their service area. Grumpy and Cheerbear are using this opportunity to restock some supplies previously used and also are trying to obtain food from the on-duty material manager. Suddenly, there's an over-the-radio tap-out for an auto versus pedestrian at 12345 Tummy Sign Avenue. Yeah, t- Tummy Sign. Cheerbear okay. beats Grumpy out to the ambulance and hops in the driver's seat while Grumpy comes out running with various things, including snacks, and jumps in the passenger seat. Some of you might be asking, like, does this detail really matter? And it does because yeah, this, it does. this crew has their own system for each shift. They split the shift into two parts. And for the first half, one medic will do the driving and assist on the calls. And then they switch those roles halfway through. So while this will be cheer bears call, they are in the unusual role of driving themselves to their own scene. And you're you, again, you might be going like, OK, but does, does this matter? Well, let's find out together. <laughs> yeah all right so i'm not gonna spend too much time with this i promise but i'm not a huge fan of a system like this and here's why uh so in a typical system like the way i used to work is you trade off it's, it's like i do the first call you do the second i do third you do fourth you, know, you just trade off back and forth and the reason i like that is because so let's say you start out driving well then you're first up so you drive to a call and then the person who mapped you in drives out and that that's kind of a good thing because you just stared at a map on how to get out of a neighborhood and then you get to drive out of that neighborhood in this way if you drive yourself uh if if you end up like driving to a call and you didn't and you weren't the one mapping in then like i've I've been on calls where like getting out like becomes a problem (laughs) because all of a sudden you're like oh shit i didn't stare at the map on the way in and now i'm a little confused uh, uh shit yeah so yeah if you're the one that drives to the call and then drives away without ever looking at a map it can be kind of hard because all you know is what you saw on the way in oh gotcha well you didn't le- yeah a- a- anyway yeah. let's well let's move on in this but system that's, that's my opinion Cheerbearer is the one who has access to their mdt that mobile dispatch terminal or like the mobile data terminal uh whichever yeah. one is the right way uh but but is uh, is Cheerbear driving or no? Cheerbear is driving, but they are the ones who have access to it. They see it. It's facing them, so it's mapping them oh, okay. into the call. Uh, Fair enough. So, but but and I'll riff on that. I don't agree with that. It should be the other person mapping. If you're driving code three, especially because it's dangerous, you're you should have heads up, and then your person should be like, "Hey, you're taking your next right," and that's all you should be worrying about. But anyway, yeah. Well. Grumpy gets situated and the crew members do talk in route to the call that they're going on, which ends up being like this sort of abbreviated conversation. Uh, Cheer Bear goes, fuck, I don't want a trauma call. And Grumpy goes like, yay, a trauma call for you. Uh, <laughs> because so both medics have discovered in the time they've worked together that they have a like they have a fairly complementary skill set. Uh, they find yeah. that they are strong in areas that the other actually feels they're kind of weak in. For instance, Grumpy Bear feels that they have a very solid grasp on like scene management, airway skills and like those kinds of skills. And their partner, Cheer Bear, has an incredibly in-depth knowledge of like lab values medications and is described as like a very skilled iv er 
Ivier, IV starter. Yeah, whatever. Uh, yeah, let's go with Ivier. Yeah, Ivier. I'm yeah, going like with that. that. Iviest. Uh, Iviest. Yes, there it yeah. is. Yeah. Iviologist. I don't know. I, um, I'm going too much. <laughs> and so, like, while they do build those skills from time to time, like with each other and set themselves up, like to to learn and to to build those experiences, Grumpy says that they kind of like already know the roles they'd end up taking on this trauma call should it end up being like a real deal which is hey we're going to play to our strengths so um and i do want to point out at this point they do know that fire is en route to the call as well sweet so they arrive to the scene about seven minutes later and here's what they come upon they arrive to a two uh, to a dark two-lane road with poorly lit businesses on each side this isn't like a city downtown area but it's like a central district area with businesses restaurants bars along the sides of the road that kind of place um like there's houses maybe a couple uh like blocks down the road goes into residential Mm -hmm. so um the area is you know mark it's markedly poorly lit but the headlights from the ambulance easily capture the scene and the scene is it's a there there is a large group of 30 plus people who are in a crowd and have formed on this roadway surrounding something a patient maybe Uh, some (laughs) some members of the crowd are like notably frantic and yelling at other members of the crowd and others just kind of like standing there observing both grumpy and cheer bear arrived and they're worried because they've recently had a may day event with some similarities to what we've just driven up on and real quick oh my a may day event not that it's called that in the carolot kingdom but i'm calling it here it's essentially (laughs) A help, help, help. I'm in danger call over the radio. And, yeah. and it doesn't always have to be a call. Some systems like the one we're talking about have a button that you can press, which alarms you know everybody. But the result is ultimately that help is sent to you, usually in the form of police, other fire and or additional ambulance crews, situation depending. Um, so Grumpy and cheer bears a recent encounter with the mayday event happened when they found themselves trying to locate a seizure patient who was reported to be like in an alley downtown and they while they're looking for the patient people ended up surrounding and ultimately kind of blocking the ambulance and at at first it was sort of due to like drunken curiosity like hey why is there an ambulance stopped here in this intersection like what's going on and people going out there like hey what are you doing but then like as the ambulance was like, hey, guys, yeah, we're looking for a person like move, move. Uh, people did start to get mad and uh, like did start to like strike the ambulance out of anger and become threatening. And so like the ambulance Jesus. managed to escape and they did find the patient like a couple blocks away. But that crowd that attacked their ambulance followed them. So that event Uh, along with the debriefing and the discussions that followed are fresh in their minds here. Okay. So they see this crowd and both medics have thoughts, but a couple things happen before they even really get to do anything. Two to three people come over to Grumpy's window and report that the patient had been drinking with them in the establishment. And then they came out to find him in the road. And as this information is being given, the crowd, which was encircling the patient, now sort of forms like a three-quarter circle around uh, around the patient, allowing the crew to see a male patient laying in the roadway with a man hugging onto him. 
Grumpy can only see the patient's limbs and said that they appear to be grossly deformed. One member, they do witness this, one member of the crowd like tries to pull the male off the patient, but the man responds, fuck you, don't touch me, and clings even harder to the patient. Uh, Grumpy can hear the individuals in the crowd shouting things like, hey, don't touch him. Hey, we got to move him. Get off him. You need to roll him and other such things. So Grumpy Bear's Grumpy Bear tells Cheer Bear their plan. Okay, I'm going to go real quick to check to see if they have a pulse. If they do, let's just get the patient and get them into the ambulance. Cheer Bear agrees and says, "Okay, if they have a pulse, I'll get the stretcher and back and backboard. Both agree that if anything goes awry, it's press the mayday button and GTFO or retreat. Or get the fuck out. Exactly. Is what GTFO stands yeah. for. Yeah, but, you know, retreat. Uh, yeah. Grumpy felt like this plan would be okay in this situation as the crowd, though unruly, like is appears to be genuinely concerned for the patient and is really just sort of arguing with themselves. So hmm. Grumpy Bear makes their way through the crowd who, who continues to yell out things uh, they, they feel the patient might need. An elderly, oh, no. an elderly male does stop. Give him essential oils. <laughs> I got some crystals. Someone boil, <laughs> someone boil some cinnamon. Oh, shit. <laughs> it's not Eugene, man. Well, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> an elderly male does stop Grumpy and begs her to help the patient. Grumpy. Okay. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to do it, sir, but since you asked, <laughs> since you asked, right. I'm here. <laughs> Grumpy smartly recognizes an opportunity and enlists the elderly male to help with the crowd so that she can actually get to the patient and provide patient care. And it am um, good. Good work. Yeah, I'm impressed. And it kind of works like the elderly male starts enlisting fellow bystanders to aid in this. Grumpy is able to get over to the patient who's still being huddled over by a younger man who is shaking him and begging him to wake up. The patient is a 50s male estimated at like 190 pounds, about 510. Uh, Grumpy notes smears of blood on the ground and on the patient's clothes. But the male covering the patient really sort of prevents that better assessment. The patient's eyes are noted to be open, but there's no purposeful movement and the, like they don't look or engage. They're just sort of staring upright uh, or straight up into the sky. Pupils appear dilated, but again, it's it's dark and it's kind of hard to see. Uh, Grumpy reaches around the male, like sort of through the male covering the patient so that they can touch uh, the patient and feel a carotid pulse. So Grumpy calls out to Cheer Bear, hey, Cheer Bear. OK, bring the stretcher over. He's got a pulse. Grumpy then gently taps the male who's laying on the patient and says ambulance. The male responds with a very aggressive, like, get the fuck off me and lifts an arm to kind of move the uh, to move Grumpy away. But this time, while <laughs> a member of the crowd then just sort of like grabs that man's arm and puts that man into like a half Nelson, telling the man to like, get the fuck off him. So they the ambulance can help. This sets off even more arguments and like minor combat in the crowd of bystanders. Oh, fuck. So meanwhile, Cheer Bear, who is heading over with the stretcher and like that stuff, they, they see the increase in the crowd aggression. They hit the Mayday button over the radio. Uh, and in response to a question like asked by dispatch, they just sort of like key up the mic and capture the crowd noise. So if PD wow. wasn't on their way already, they sure will be now. 
Yeah, they will. So Grumpy seeing Cheer Bear and desperately wanting to like get away from the crowd, but like with the pulsatile patient tells Cheer Bear like, hey, forget the stretcher. Just bring like just bring the board over. Cheer Bear comes over with the backboard and a sea collar. And right at that moment, the fire department arrives and three more Care Bears all ready to care <laughs> enter the scene. Grumpy quickly tells them the plan and no one disagrees as the group collectively sea collar the patient quickly roll them onto a backboard with Grumpy doing a quick sweep sweep of the back. The limbs, by the way, were like moved into their anatomically correct position without much difficulty. Um, and they're trying to secure them to the board. But as as this is happening, the crowd has now turned its focus back onto the ambulance crew and are making really agitated demands like, hey, why aren't you doing CPR? This guy needs oxygen. Those sorts of yeah, things. This is bad. So they immediately like load the patient into the safety of the ambulance. The patient's wife was apparently like on scene and like did approach the crew and asked to see if the patient before they like were able to load the crew in. But like the crew basically goes like, hey, we're not able to accommodate this because one, the crowd is very scary. And two, the all they know is that this patient has significant trauma, is unresponsive, and has a pulse, and they don't want to delay any more care. By the way, we're somewhere between like the we're probably around like the 10 minute mark for this call with all of the things okay. that have been going on. Um, and also the trauma center that they need to go to is about eight minutes or so away from this spot. Okay. But what so what we have here though, we have a 50s year old male. Uh, trauma patient uh, who well I mean like do we so do we know exactly what happened here yet like I heard this dispatch is an auto ped but do we have any information on that does the wife know anything because I haven't heard anything like is there a car nearby like what actually happened dude I'm glad you asked Uh, grumpy didn't specifically ask anyone in the crowd what was happening as again this is like just this super tense situation but they did overhear the crowd talking about the patient being hit by a car but it doesn't sound like anyone there like witnessed it more more that they all came out and like found this guy down in the middle of the road and there's no one around um, okay, the, so we don't know what happened to yeah. the guy. A lot of trauma. A lot of trauma. There's no car around to tell us that they, oh, yeah, I hit him with no. my truck. And really more than information, they wanted to get to the safety of the ambulance with the patient. And and by the way, the, the fire bears did say that the police were right behind them and should be there at any moment. So I think there was sort of this hope that they would be able to start assessment and treatments. And then the police would kind of help bring the calm. And then they'd get to learn more about the events and like patient's history. Okay. So all five Care Bears get into the back of the ambulance. They close the doors and they start to work. Grumpy Bear and Firefighter Good Luck Bear occupy the airway area of the ambulance. Cheer Bear and Firefighter Wish Bear are standing in the bench area. And Firefighter Good Night Bear is at the foot end of the patient. So here's what happens next. Cheer Bear, from their central location, tells Wish and Goodnight Bear to make the patient naked so that they can do a full assessment. They tell the Fire Bears to check for distal pulses and mark wherever they find one. Meanwhile, Grumpy and Good Luck Bear immediately start to manage the airway tasks with Grumpy directing. And I want to add here that there is no person just like standing back and directing. Everyone is really involved in patient care. The crew just sort of like essentially call out their findings to each other and confirm like their teammates action. Um, there's a lot that happens in the next few minutes. So I'm going to just kind of condense it to this next bit. Okay. 
All right. So level of consciousness, the patient is unresponsive, eyes open, but not tracking. For okay. exsanguination, there is no spurting blood noticed initially, you know, but stand by. <laughs> okay. Air- airway. The patient's airway is patent. The patient's mouth is clear of fluid or debris, but the patient's breathing at about four times a minute and exhibiting this like belly breathing where their like okay. abdomen is rising and their chest isn't really rising as well. My understanding is that typically what you have in, in this scenario where you see a lot of the belly breathing, which is where basically you're seeing an abdominal distension with each breath as opposed to a chest rise with each with each breath breath is uh, for whatever reason, um, you have secondary muscles taking over to try and expand the chest as opposed to the intercostal muscles doing their job. Oh, gotcha. OK, yeah. No, that. Uh, yeah. So. Anyway, so they resolve this by an OPA being placed in the mouth and a BVM is connected to high flow O2 and good luck bear essentially starts uh, BVMing the patient. Um, the BVM is initially noted to cause like very minimal chest rise and grumpy bear quickly loosens the chest straps, uh, the spider straps across the backboard, uh, which, as it turns out, solves the problem. Hey, I love this. I like. Yeah. Amen. And that's. Well, which, quite frankly, like not to toot my own horn here, but um, yeah, so it sounds like the chest muscles were constricted. And so the uh, accessory muscles took over. Uh, but anyway, um, but no, good. Uh, yeah, good work. I, I love simple fixes like this. They just they make they make my heart happy. Anyway, all right, moving on. <laughs> so cap refill is noted to be delayed at around like four seconds. Normal is two, uh, by the way. Okay. And cap refill, for those who don't know, that's just sort of like a measurement of um, uh, dist- like distal circulation, peripheral circulation. And so if somebody's yep. in a state of like hypoperfusion or a state of shock, uh, where blood flow to, you know, things like your fingers isn't your body's priority, then you're going to see a significant delay in blood being able to get there. And so, like, if you push on your finger, you should see your, like, it should kind of blanch out and then return to a normal color within less than two seconds. So four seconds right. is pretty extended. Um, it, I do want to point out that this is a person of color, the, the patient with dark skin tones. And I bring this up because like we as providers are taught to rely heavily on skin signs to really cue us into problems that the patient might be having. And at least in the time that I took my course, there wasn't to my recollection, any discussion on how to assess skin signs in someone with darker skin, because it can be harder to appreciate things like bruising. Um, there's sort of difference. Uh, there's a difference appearance in like for, for the signs of hypoxia. Um, and, and those other kind of signs with darker skin tones. So, yeah. So as it turns out, we're actually trained to run calls on uh, white male, 20 year old mannequins. And, uh, that, <laughs> fuck yeah, dude. uh, yeah. And that, and, and, and believe it or not, that's actually not, uh, all the patients, uh, that we see. And so while skin signs on white male mannequins, uh, <laughs> or on white males, um, uh, is some of our patients, it's not all of our patients. And unfortunately, there is a problem with the way we train in that it doesn't train us to actually work on the people we're going to see. Yeah, that's a really good point. And by the way, this issue really extends like far beyond just EMS. And it is a topic that thankfully seems to be getting more and more recognition in medicine. Uh, And, you know, uh, we'll touch on this again at the end. Uh, But 
I bring this up because Grumpy Bear does report that they are now focusing on the like the patient's mucous membranes around and in their mouth, and they note that they appear to have good color, but they also note that the patient's skin was otherwise cool uh, to the touch, and it's dry. So, um, yeah, they're not seeing indications of hypoxia or like really poor perfusion uh, from their assessment, but uh, aside from like the patient's cool skin. So... Uh, so let's talk about the head, ears, eyes, nose, throat. There's no obvious deformities or significant uh, bleeding to the patient's head. The pupils uh, in the back of the ambulance w- with light appeared to be even at about four millimeters. They still are like not moving. Um, there is a laceration above the right eyebrow with controlled bre- bleeding. And there's a laceration like nearby the patient's mouth with oozing blood, but it's not going into the mouth. So, boom. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the neck, nothing noted. There is a C collar, but they didn't notice anything earlier. Uh, chest, they said no apparent chest trauma noted. The chest wall appears to be intact. Lung sounds are present and equal with the BVM after the straps were loosened. Um, with the abdomen, initially they had the belly breathing, uh, which they corrected with the straps, but the abdomen is otherwise described as like soft. With the pelvis, it, there's it's not described as non-traumatic and stable the limbs there is an open tib fib fracture on the right lower leg which ended up having arterial bleeding on inspection after the clothes were cut they did notice that the pant oh, leg was is. saturated and so when they cut that open uh they saw that like oh there it is blood is spurting out of that thing so cheer bear yeah. does get a tourniquet placed with good effect and by the way there's a small bit of comedy uh when good night bear alarmed reported they no longer could find a pulse after the tourniquet was placed <laughs> <laughs> well so basically basically good night bear confirmed that this tourniquet was placed correctly yep uh, excellent work good night bear and excellent work cheer bear uh Nailed it. Yep. They also note that there's full thickness abrasions to the bilateral lower legs and also the arms are like clearly deformed and they are also fractured. Uh, So and of course, like while this is happening, the patient is placed on a monitor and here are the vitals. By the way, it is 217. So the respirations are now 10 a minute via the BVM with high flow O2. Uh, end title CO2, which was connected, uh, is 37. Um, and they are using the waveform as metrics as a guide for good luck bear to, uh, breathe. Grumpy did tell them that they would like an end title CO2 of 30 to 35. Okay. So gave them a target. They're aiming for it. The pulse is 77 with sinus rhythm on the monitor. The patient's oxygen okay. saturation is 98%. Chris, Good. a CBG was checked, and I'm going to comment that they told this to me after the fact. They're like, yes, yeah, so I know you didn't ask, but I'm telling you, the CBG is too <laughs> So that, that continues. Ouch. Thank you, Grumpy. Uh, BP, oh 120 over 100 via the autocuff. And additionally, uh, the patient is getting an IV, and I believe it's an 18-gauge. They're hanging normal saline uh, as this service doesn't carry LR. Okay, so they're giving some saline. Yeah, I, I, some people might have heard these vital signs and been like, hey, like, why is saline being given? Um, especially, you know, like if the patient's perfusing and all these things. Uh, I look at this patient, I'm like, hey, we know they're bleeding. They, they have an arterial bleed going on in a lower extremity. And given it's the lower part of a lower extremity. Yeah. But it's still sometimes, I mean, saturating a pant leg, you're still losing a lot of blood there. 
Uh, and when I see a blood pressure like 120 over 100, I start to think like, okay, someone's compensating for shock right now, given their heart rate's only 70s. Um, but yeah, I, I, I can see saline uh, being given. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if it's being like dumped in wide open or if it's just being sort of dripped in right. slowly. So like I, I'm, I'm like, if it's being dumped in wide open, then maybe not. But if it's if it's being right. dripped in or, you know, like they're like, hey, I'm expecting this blood pressure to go down. I want this here and I want it started yeah. so that we can kind of prevent that. Like then I'm, I'm far more like, yeah, OK. But yeah, I, I think that that that's where I would be exactly in in the same spot, because uh, I mean, I'm always concerned about head injury and trauma, especially it sounds like you have some facial lacerations and we need to make sure that the brain is perfused. But we also don't want to make anybody hypertensive if they have a brain bleed uh, at the same time. Yeah. So and, and I'll, I'll yeah. talk about this later because we will talk about some fluid here uh, coming up. Um and we'll revisit this issue. But at this point, the police did arrive and they did check in with the crew and everyone, but everyone is sort of like working on the patient at this point. Um, so up in the airway, Grumpy is setting themselves up for an intubation. The patient gets a nasal cannula placed in addition to the BVM and that nasal cannula is set to 15 liters per minute. So pre-oxygenation okay. has started. Um, Grumpy Bear grabs their airway roll selects their Mac three direct laryngoscopy blade along with a 7.5 ETT. They have a, uh, super crazy stylet thing, uh, which they elect to use for this intubation. Uh, and they make a hockey stick shape for their tube. They do get a bougie out as well, but, uh, they're going to go with the stylet <clears throat> bougie hmm. for the win. Uh, yeah, should have, yeah, but oh well. yeah, here we are. And they get their eye gel airway as a backup. Um, but space to set up is becoming an issue now at this point because there is there's zero space to work and set up things up because there's five people in an ambulance plus a floor that's like quickly filling with like garbage and debris and a bench that is like stacked with equipment or blocked by providers who are doing patient care. Uh, so Grumpy does ask for a syringe tray so they can also also start drawing up medications that they will need as workspace is becoming an issue. And again, those meds are Atomidate and Versed. Um, and it's now 218 and the side door of the ambulance opens again. And the supervisor, supervisor Cloudkeeper appears and Grumpy is thrilled. The Cloudkeeper asks like, what can I do to help? And Grumpy asks them like, hey, can you help drop medications? Well, they're filling them in on what's going on and asking them about like the scene outside. And this is an important moment I need to flag because the cloud keeper arrived to find basically like a cleared out road safer, like a, some police officers and an ambulance that is filled to the brim with providers and a very serious okay. trauma patient. So the so at this point, the crowd is pretty much cleared. Yeah, they, they they're nice. Grumpy Good. asked them like, hey, like, what's it like out there? And they're like, what do you mean? Like, there's nothing. There's no one out here. It's just yeah. like police. It's quiet. <laughs> so I'm actually going to have a picnic. So <laughs> <in a second. laughs> and I want to point out, like, at this point, like another provider from their agency, like also arrives and is asked by cheer bear to, like, get demographics and information from the police department about the patient, like, hey, to tell us what happened and who this person is. It's around this point. The patient slowly raises one arm. Wow. Just reaching for nothing, really. They're just You're raising just up in their hand. They had something to say. Yeah. And it's the only movement the patient will make. 
for the call. Hmm. Uh, gr- okay, so they got a refusal, and <laughs> like, all right, good, yeah. Uh, it's an arm, one arm raise. Like, sir, raise your arm if it's today's date. Nailed it. All right, <laughs> it is today's date, He's as it turns out. It. You're yeah. fine. Is He's the, good. Is the president, whoever it was at the time the call happened? Hey, there it is. Arms raised. All right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We said we got to get creative about stroke assessments. Like maybe we should get creative this about refusals it. too. <laughs> yeah, <man. laughs> All right. So at this point, Grumpy does lean in and I, this is a really nice piece. Grumpy does lean in and start talking to the patient, trying to like reassure them, like just in case some part of them is conscious underneath. this. That is a really, yeah, that, that's a fine touch right there because you and I have been around this long enough to have follow-ups where Patients heard everything. Yeah. So with the drugs drawn up, uh, the patient is given 40 milligrams atomidate and it's O221. Mm. Vitals at O222, by the way, are. See, you're right back to specifics again. You couldn't let it go. I couldn't could let you? it go. You couldn't. Yeah. No, you're, you're right back. You, you've relapsed. Yeah. At, vitals at 22, yeah. at O2, on, 22, Macklemore, 21 are BP 108 over 53. Nice. Good reference. Yeah. Thank you. Heart rate 83. Respirations are now 18 via the BVM. End title is 35. And the SPO2 is now not reading. But prior to this, the SATs had all been 100%. So the suspicion here is that the pulse oximeter fell off when the patient moved their arm. Okay. Um, At 0223, all ready to go. The C collar uh, on the patient is undone. The OPA is removed. And grumpy inserts the Mac three blade into the patient's mouth and is ecstatic to discover what they call the sunset over the mountain view. The vocal cords Ooh. are easily seen. That's actually a really nice description. It's the first time I've ever heard that. And it's really nice. Yeah, yeah. But it is nice. It's, yeah. So grumpy goes like nice and advances the tube right towards the target. But suddenly realize they can't seem to get the tip of the cord, like the tip of the tube through the cords. So they they try this tick they were taught by anesthesiologists during their clinicals of like slowly twisting the tube left and right. And I was kind of taught a similar thing by uh, like our medical director uh, to turn the tube. We have the same medical director. So. So, yeah, (laughs) by our medical director to to turn the tube uh, counterclockwise when this happens. Uh, But, you know, left and right appeared to do the trick for Grumpy because they felt like it advanced through the cords. But. Because of the angle uh, of the ET, they really couldn't actually see it pass through the cords. Um, okay. The stylet is pulled and the BVM is attached to the. Uh, oh, wait, hold on. What the fuck? Where's the hub to connect the BVM? Oh, the hub, which allows the BVM to connect to the ET tube, is not seated on the end of the ET tube Whoops. as it should be. It's instead it's sitting in a wrapper in the uh, in the packaging. <laughs> oh, no. But <laughs> as this has happened before, Grumpy has actually learned like uh, you got to keep the wrapper close by. <laughs> and yeah. with one hand tightly holding the tube in place, they're able to snag that missing piece, throw it on the end, attach the BVM and the end title and breasts are delivered and waveform capnography is present. But it's really quick, yeah, really quick, just so everyone knows exactly what we're talking about. So ET tube, you have the plastic tube itself, but on the end, 
there's a piece that connects to the BVM and it falls out all the fucking time because it's just wedged in the top. That, that's the only way it stays in. And so, in fact, there are ways to do something called a needle cricothyrotomy, which I won't go into here, where it actually requires you to grab the tube and pull that piece off um, because it's so easy to pull off. So, yeah, they fall apart all the fucking time. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. go ahead. Yeah. So breasts are delivered and the waveform capnography is present, but it's at 11 millimeters of mercury. Um, Ooh, but uh, for reference, guys, this should be uh, between 35 and 45. And I think in this patient, they were gunning for between 30 and 35. But still, yeah, yeah. so 11 is low. 11 is very low. Um, and it's almost low enough to where I doubt its placement. But what they're reporting is consistent waveform with each breath. The, the cloud keeper and cheer bear report like report to Grumpy. Hey, this tube is good. So the balloon is inflated. They're about to move to like to secure it with like a, you know, a, some kind of commercial tube holding device. But suddenly vomit starts like filling into the patient's mouth and pouring out from around and around the ET tube. Grumpy reaches over to the wall suction unit, which is located at the right side and realizes to their dismay that is not actually set up. There's no tubing connected oh, to shit. the unit. It's just like a canister. Um, oh, goodness. So they go like, oh, shit. They start frantically reaching around for the portable suction unit. Uh, and here's the rationale. They're like, I need suction. This is my rig. I, I know where it's at. Hold on. I'll find it. And I could probably get to it faster. So uh, key point. Okay. I really want to highlight this. They are still the ones holding the tube in place with their other hand. They reach, they locate the unit, they get the suction out. But now as they turn back to the patient, they see that vomit is also coming out from the top of the tube. Bad sign. The end tidal CO2 detector isn't reading because, well, now it's blocked. Um, yeah. The tube is essentially lost. So, yeah. See, when there was vomit coming around the tube, I was almost like, well, good. I mean, at least the tube's in the right spot. Otherwise, it'd be coming out of the top of the tube. But now we have vomit coming out of the top of the tube. And if you have vomit coming out of your tube, mm. uh, the last time I checked, lungs don't vomit. So the vomit, by the way, was food and was described as like food and drink contact uh, content. Okay. There was no blood noted in the emesis. Uh, the patient's mouth is just heavily suctioned and a backup eye gel is placed. And it's now 225. Uh, and this seems to have done the trick, except that moments later, the same thing happens again. Vomit starts pouring out from the patient's mouth and up through the eye gel. There were mm, some really also not good. Yeah, there were some really valiant attempts to use like an NG tube through this like the this channel that is present on eye gels, which allows like you to be able to pass a suction tube down. Uh, but for some reason, they didn't work. There was some kinking or or some other frustrating thing that prevented that from really happening. Vitals were recorded while the suction troubleshooting was happening. And so here they are. Blood pressure is 91 over 55. Heart rate's 99. SpO2 is a question mark. And end tidal CO2 is none. Um, they do eventually, uh, within a couple minutes, or like they're able to use something called a whistle tip catheter to suction out the vomit and get it to recede enough to be able to ventilate the patient. So it's now 231. Vitals are as follows. Blood pressure, 81 over 46. Heart rate, 102. SpO2 is now 68% with a good plough wave. And the end tidal CO2 is not reading because it needs to be replaced. The eye gel is secured with its strap and the patient is being bagged with noted visible chest rise. 
uh, the patient's lung sounds are assessed and ronchi is heard bilaterally. And recall that they were clear before. And now Grumpy is really uneasy with this airway. They've had experiences with IGELs having difficulty staying seated, especially with this amount of vomit involved. And they believe, given their previous view of the cords, that they would have a really high degree of success in passing an ET tube, which, again, they felt would really be the better choice for this patient. So Grumpy tells Cheerbear this and the cloud keeper from their spot in the door interjects and says, like, no, hey, guys, you need to get going with this patient. And I should note that it was previously established that the fire crew is only able to send along Wish Bear, who is an EMT, but I believe is going through the local Care Bear Steramedic program. (laughs) Nothing. Oh, Oh my God. You're a monster. No, 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 no. I got it. I was so proud. Fine. Damn it, Chris. (laughs) Jesus Christ. But I might be wrong in that aspect. Um, So there we are. Regardless, it's 0233, and a brief argument is now ensuing between Grumpy and the Cloud Keeper. Grumpy, they tell the Cloud Keeper that they believe this patient would end up aspirating without an ET tube. They don't believe that this IGEL airway is trustworthy. Uh, the Cloud Keeper basically responds like, hey guys, the hospital is five minutes away, and you bears need to get going with this patient. Um, and, and a few point more points and counterpoints get mentioned by both parties, but ultimately Cheerbear, who is the PIC, steps in and says, like, all right, it's fine. I'll just take the EMT rider and we'll keep the IGEL. A set of okay. a set of vitals is documented at 0234, which is during this discussion. Uh, the patient remains unresponsive. Their blood pressure is 92 over 53. They have a heart heart rate of 90 with sinus rhythm on the monitor. The respirations are 13 via the BVM. The end tidal CO2 has been placed back on and is now 59. And the SpO2 is still missing. So with the argument settled, Grumpy Bear draws up the additional medications for Cheer Bear from their case. Uh, While the cabinets and equipments were like secured, Uh, I should mention that the person sent to like get info did return, but they basically returned with like demographics, Uh, no medical history, nothing else really just like, yeah, all right, here's this guy. (laughs) So uh, there didn't appear to be any witnesses to the event. uh, So we don't know like the speed size, like how they were struck. Were they actually like, were they hit by what were they hit by or any of those details? So someone got away with the hit and run. Awesome. Another set of vitals are obtained. Well, Grumpy hands the cloud keeper an empty O2 bottle, like their portable O2, and goes like, hey, we're going to need a new one at the hospital. Uh, yeah. Grumpy then gets up front to drive. It's now O2.36, and they depart code three towards the hospital. Now, I bet everyone's like, okay, cool. Like, yeah, this crisis. Okay, the crisis is over. Um, that was, yeah, that was intense. They're so they're probably just going to get there. And then Crystal Spencer will do like, you know, salad technique or, you know, something like that, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> which we will. Yes. But, oh, you sweet, sweet summer children. This is an EMS 2020 call and we're not even near the hospital yet. Oh, yeah. There's a whole there's a whole eight minute transport ahead. <laughs> so remember how really early on I mentioned that Cheer Bear drove to the address of the call. That was one, two, yeah. three, four, five Tummy Sign Avenue. And, and they were mm-hmm. mapped in with the MDT. Well, the address on the MDT is different than the address that was said out loud. This is actually North 12345 Tummy Sign Avenue. 
which oh, goodness. is a different location than uh which is you know a different location than the one they were actually at so grumpy departs towards the hospital code three using the directions they would have taken if they were at the radioed address which unfortunately isn't the same direction uh and it doesn't take too long for grumpy to realize that they are not where they thought they were they're going like what the hold on where the fuck am i and so then they turn to the mdd to help them but the mdt was also having like difficulties figuring out where they were or something along those lines uh so they're trying to work on this. Suddenly there's like road construction. Grumpy Bear does like does re- figure out where they are and they see a road that they recognize would be like helpful in kind of getting them back the right direction. So they head down it only to find themselves diverted down a different road due to some construction that's happening. Yeah, because great 2 a.m. It's a great time to do construction. Uh, oh, yeah, actually, it is, I mean, it is. But like, on. God damn it. Not when I'm working. <laughs> Right. (laughs) So that road, Chris, that road has a train track. The road that they ended up having to be diverted down has a train track running across it. Oh, and there's a train. There cannot be a train. That's that's. Yeah, there is a train. It's of course there is fucking huge, and it's endless from uh, Grumpy's angle. Uh, And and Grumpy Bear is just like, oh my god, they're just dismayed. And the problem is, is they're like. I'm not where I thought I was, and I probably should have, like, I'm going to be held to the expectation that I knew where I was. And there's going to be a lot of questions, like, why did you go this wrong direction? There was, you know, the delay piece already. And so now they have, the procedure here is they have to radio into dispatch to announce their delay. That's the policy. And so that would include the supervisor who they had the argument with. Also being keyed into the fact that like, well, hold on, why, where did they go? What are they doing? So that sort of thing. Uh, no. But yeah. But Basically, what you're saying is the patient who pretty much had the physical capacity to raise an arm and give a high five probably could have walked to the hospital by now. Like that's- <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. And I, I mean, and I don't want to say like, Ed, like they were that callous. Like there is also the like, oh, fuck, we have this significantly sick trauma patient who needs to oh, get to I the know. hospital. Uh, but yeah, uh, there, there's a lot of things going on. Uh, but thankfully, the caboose, that last car just suddenly rolls by them and it's clear. Uh, and that's right as they're about to like, fuck, I have to. All right. So yeah, boom, train car goes by the arms lift and they're back in route. And they are overjoyed. They know where they are. And like, while they were briefly to like delayed through this sort of like being lost, it's really not as bad as it could be. They're actually about 11 minutes from the hospital up from what would have been like an eight to nine minute transport. So two to three minute delay with all of this. Uh, They drive code three for maybe another two minutes. And about that time, cheer bear hits them with this fun bit of care bear stare from the back. They call out, hey, grumpy, I just set the crike. Oh, wow. Left turn. <laughs> and you all probably have questions. I mean, not, 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 not for Grumpy Bear. Not, <laughs> not for Grumpy Bear. No, they no, they no, should Bears. not take a left turn. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, they should just keep going the way they're going. But, I mean, yeah, left. Wow. Go ahead. All right. Jesus. So, yeah, you probably all have questions, uh, but we won't get those answered from the front of the cab. So, let's cut back to the events experienced by uh, Cheer Bear 
as reported by Grumpy Bear. Uh, So a minute after departing the scene, the patient is given 100 micrograms of fentanyl for presumed pain in the intubated trauma patient. Uh, A second 18 gauge IV is established and the patient is given a second 500 milliliter bag. And I think the other bag was like replaced at some point as well. And again, well, we don't know the rates or if they are being bullished or just like given wide open. I do know that the patient ultimately got about a liter and a half over the course of their care. And I want to make that quick aside that this is the point I think you were trying to bring up earlier. Like in trauma patients who we feel are bleeding, uh, our our goals for systolic pressure are usually around like 80 to 90 millimeters of mercury or like a map around 65. Um, And the thought behind that is like, hey, what the person likely needs is blood not a bunch of IV fluid as IV fluid doesn't have all like the important shit that like blood products have like hemoglobin, for instance. And so Mm -hmm. the idea is we don't want to fill that patient with IV fluid when what they really need is blood, but we still want them to have like enough fluid in the tank to help move the blood they do have to the organs. Um, And with a head injury, the goal is actually often higher with some protocols saying like, Hey, aim for a hundred to 110 Uh, for a systolic pressure. And that's really just to maintain cerebral perfusion because in a head injured patient, there's going to be more pressure in the head that that blood has like that your system has to overcome to get blood to it, Um, you know, from swelling or bleeding that's happening, which, you know, that's what you have to remember. So when you're perfusing, when you're perfusing the brain, you're kind of competing with the amount of pressure that's in the head. And that pressure essentially pushes back Against the systemic blood pressure. Exactly. So as you have it, yeah. So as you have increasing pressure in the brain, in order to perfuse it, there's gonna, you're going to need more systemic pressure. And that's kind of a really bad cycle to get into, but yeah. it's, it's how it works. Yeah. And so like really overall, the fluids being given to this patient, like to me, they sort of make sense, especially like as throughout the call, their blood pressure has been decreasing. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, so at 0239, vitals are taking it again. We have a heart rate of 87. We have a blood pressure of 98 over 60. Respirations are now 10 again uh, via the BBM, thanks to Wishbear, who's writing in. And the end title CO2 is at 47, down from 59. And the patient, I know, surprising, still unresponsive. At 0240, the end title 2 climbed up to 55 and then stops reading. Why, you might be asking. Well, mm. there's vomit on the sweater already. <laughs> no, there's more vomit <laughs> oh, again. I just, sorry, couldn't help it. Uh, vomit <laughs> was described as spewing out of the eye gel. And Cheer Bear was worried that it wouldn't sit properly or maintain a seal. And he was worried that the patient wouldn't make it to the trauma hospital. And they reported to Grumpy Bear that their s- attempts to suction were ineffective. So, at- so here's what I'll say right here yeah. is that if you have vomit coming out of the eye gel, uh, Cheer Bear's worried that it wouldn't sit properly. I'll tell you this. It isn't setting properly because the whole purpose of an eye gel is that it's supposed to go over uh, it essentially it should be cordoning off the trachea from any stomach contents because that's where it's supposed to sit. Yeah. The distal end of the eye gel is supposed to sit right over the trachea and basically form a seal around the trachea. So if you have vomit coming out of the eye gel, it is not doing the job it's supposed to do because vomit should not be coming out of the eye gel. So this isn't a matter of if it will sit properly. I can tell you that right now it is not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I nailed it. And so at 242, Cheerbear performs a surgical cricothyrotomy with Wishbear assisting and successfully obtains an airway. I'm Good. going to add 
Wishbear's comment at the end of this, uh, at, at the end of this task, uh, was to say like, oh, wow, this is just like Chicago fire. Oh, fuck. I know. No, I hate it, too. <laughs> Chicago Fire, by the way, we're not talking about the actual fire department in Chicago. We're talking about a TV show. Yeah. But. <laughs> no, no, I'm talking about Chicago Fire. Fuck all okay, of you. Okay, I got you. They just do crikes left and right. They just walk in. They're yeah. like, yeah, it's a transfer back home discharge. Crike. <laughs> no, yeah. No, good Here's point. a crike and refusal. <laughs> he lifted an arm. It was fine. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't the arm he normally sides with, but uh, yeah, it was cool. Yeah, I don't know. If you can give a high five, you can refuse. That's basically the general. <laughs> no, this. Yeah, it, I'm glad you clarified the show Chicago Fire, which is garbage. Right. I stand by it. Unless they want to sponsor <laughs> no, our show, then like, yeah, guys, everyone tune no, in no. Tuesdays at Check 8 p.m. Out. on. <laughs> 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 what i like is a uh, fire department chronicles uh so you should go follow him he's pretty funny but he's a firefighter that uh oftentimes he'll review chicago fire and he doesn't have the nicest things to say oh, he reviews a what is it nine one one that what what fox's nine one one what what oh is that what it is uh, yeah I mean, well he's he, on chicago fire oh, as has well. he? nice okay yeah he's done both excellent yeah all right so there it is. The Chicago fire comment is made. The crike is in and lung sounds were confirmed. And the end title CO2 did come back as 40 with good waveform and vitals Great. on arrival to the trauma center at 0249 were 106 over 62 heart rate, 89 respiration rate, 13 and an SPO2 99 with an end title yeah. CO2 at 35 millimeters of mercury with good waveform. So they arrived to the emergency department. The cloud keeper uh, who has met them there appeared very shocked when they noted the uh, when they noted the different airway in the patient. Uh, Grumpy did not pass up the opportunity to point out like, hey, so that thing I was worried about happening. Yeah, it happened. The cloud keeper is less than enthusiastic uh, appearing uh, and grumpy and cheer bear take the patient in and turn over care and report is given to the staff. And one of the doctors goes like, well, okay about the airway. And so it's actually like this, an approving. Yeah. Like a very okay? approving kind of what? Like, all right, nice. Cool. Yeah. Like sweet dog. Yeah. Like high voice. <laughs> everybody high five group. High five. We know the patient can do it. It's not like we have paralytics that we gave him to where you couldn't do it. Yeah. So uh, Grumpy and Cheer Bear depart the hospital to meet with the supervisor, the cloud keeper. And Grumpy Bear says, like, hey, you know what? Like, despite the speed bumps in the call, this was like we all really did well, given the situation. Um, especially with like the turnover uh, and, you know, the approval by the trauma doctor. Uh, the cloud keeper felt otherwise and opened with the, that okay. was a disorganized shit show. And they brought up several points, which we'll definitely cover as we do our own review of the call. But Chris, we're here. Let's do a quick breakdown of the call first. Oh uh, yeah. So quick in the call summary, make sure you got this right here. Uh, yeah. Grumpy cheer bear. They're at the base grabbing food and equipment, which I want to point out that I love that they got food. Like that's true EMS right there. That's yeah. right. All right. We need some IVs. Let's get an NRB. Uh, let's grab some frozen Oreos, which if you, if you have not had frozen Oreos, oh. by the way, mm. take some Oreos, mm -hmm. put them in the freezer. Oh, it's good stuff. Yeah. yeah let's get some innovation equipment and uh, yeah, let's head out. Uh, so they go to what 
what they believed to be is an auto pedestrian. That's what it was dispatched at. I don't know if we ever heard differently, but basically auto ped is what we're calling it. Uh, Cheer Bear, if I recall correctly, ends up driving, even though they're not the one that's kind of up to lead the call. So not necessarily going to be in the back, uh, which is kind of different for them. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, the dispatch address over the radio doesn't end up matching uh, what's on their multi-data terminal. And they get there and it's kind of a chaotic scene. There's like an agitated crowd surrounding what they think is probably the patient, um, you know, that, you know, or the new iPhone Who knows? <laughs> uh, at, uh, <laughs> at a certain point, they kind of get, get the feeling like, Hey, maybe this crowd isn't that cool and it's putting their life in danger. So they decide to go ahead and initiate a mayday call. Uh, help does arrive. Thankfully, uh, they move the patient to the back of the ambulance, uh, where they start an assessment and, you know, some treatments can be done. Eventually they attempt to innovate the patient and there's some equipment frustrations. Uh, the tube is in the process of being secured when the patient begins to like vomit everywhere. Well, a vomit. Uh, Grumpy, who's holding the tube with their hand, also searches for portable suction kit uh, because the wall suction turned out wasn't put together for them. Uh, the tube is lost in this process uh, and they end up placing an eye gel. The eye gel has like some of the same problems, uh, but those problems appear to get solved prior to transport. So there's kind of a debate about like whether or not the crew should replace the eye gel with an T-tube and, you know, prior to transport or whether or not the uh, eye gel is good and the crew should go. Uh, if you have vomit coming out of your eye gel, by the way, it's indication it's not good. Uh, Cheer Bear sides with the supervisor and the transport is started. So the address problems uh, kind of strike here. So we talked about earlier about the address not matching the MDT and it causes an extent transport to the hospital because, of course, there's a fucking train in the way. Um, during the transport, the airway patency does become an issue and, uh, with the eye gel, and Cheerbear ends up performing an emergency cricothyrotomy on the patient. So with that... Yeah. All right, Chris, there's a lot that happened here on this call. But like, what's your overall impression? Were there any parts that you really liked or that really concerned you? Uh, yeah, this is actually, this, this is an nurse call. There are some things I liked. Reiterate snacks. Good call. Um, <laughs> yes. But... Uh, yeah, so let's kind of take a look at, yeah, there turns out there was a difference between like what was on the MDT and what was dispatched in terms of like the location. Yeah. And because of kind of what this is set up, you ended up with someone who was, who didn't map themselves in having to drive out mm. and that kind of led to some issues. Yeah. So we can kind of touch on that later. Also, uh, some scene safety, scene safety, I think is undoubtedly need to be talked about because there was some issues there. I have my thoughts on scene safety and it can vary a lot, but I, I don't think we're going to get out of this episode without at least touching yeah. on that. Um, and let's talk a little bit. I mean, like one of the things that I want to talk about, and I know there's some other airway stuff to talk about, but um, the crike. I, I woof. It seems extreme, but I got to tell you, like it mm, seems yeah. to have worked in this case. So I think we really need to kind of review. Yeah, oh, I mean, I, I I'm kind of curious what went on in the back, and I kind of want to review dropping in the crike. I think it ended up being a good thing, and then of course, like I think you and I, you know, feel free to expand on this here, but we gotta. I, I have issues, and I brought it up earlier. I have thoughts about this system's approach to innovation. And I have thoughts about, yeah, but I, I, I think, I don't know. I think there are some deep, 
deep like attitudes towards innovation that kind of almost set things up to fail in this. But anyway, that's kind of my thoughts. Okay. I guess we'll dig into that here in a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I So, yeah, I, I agree. I, those are definitely things I want to talk about. Um, I, you know, I, I also kind of want to touch on the like assessment treatment aspects like, hey, we're, do we think it was good? Were there missing pieces? Were there like aspects overlooked? Um, mm-hmm. I think we also uh, don't worry. We're going to talk a ton about airway stuff. Uh, including yeah. uh, salad and cricothyrotomy. So those topics are coming up. Um, but, you know, like there's also this question of like, hey, we have a like we are delaying transport. Do we need to delay transport to correct the airway? It, it was sort of presented as an if, you know, uh, this or that. And, you know, maybe there's maybe there's some more room here because I think there's both there's there's two things that uh, kind of complement each other that I want to get into or t- two um, values that seem to compete that might not necessarily compete. So I definitely want to talk about that for this call. And then I, I want to go into the things that the supervisor felt was wrong with the call and see if we agree. Um, but because there are just, there's just so much, I, I think the best way to do this is to just kind of take these items in order of appearance in the call. Uh, okay. so let's do it. I'm with you. So let's talk about that. Uh, you know, cause that's, that's how, you know, this is a fun call to review because here we are, uh, in the first few seconds of the call and already shit has gone wrong. <laughs> uh, so yeah. yeah, the dispatch address over the radio well, like, wasn't the actual address of the call. And that seems to play havoc a little later in the transport of the call. So I guess, yeah, Chris, like whose shoulders does this tragedy sit on? Who's getting fired? Tell me. Well, quite clearly, you fire everybody. I, I think that's all right. So, ne- next point. Anyway, um, so, I, these things happen for like a variety of reasons, uh, a lot of which are kind of inadvertent, misheard, mistyped, like misspoke kind of things. And so, in a lot of systems, you have what will come over via data. Like, so what's going to go over the MDT? And a lot of that is done by basically you have a call taker who takes a call and they type in an address. Then you have someone else who then reads off what's going to happen over the radio. That's what people hear. Sometimes that's not the same person. And so there are scenarios where you can have one person who sends an address to the multi-data terminal, which then maps you in correctly. But then what's heard over dispatch is a completely different address because someone says something like Northwest instead of Southwest or Mm. vice versa, you know, whatever. And that can happen. And that's kind of what I'm guessing happened here is the correct address, the correct address was sent to the multi-data terminal, which means the person who was driving uh, looked at the multi-data terminal and had the correct address and got them to the right spot. Unfortunately, the person who had to drive out had just heard what was said and what was said over the radio was different than what was sent to the data terminal and, you know, kind of chaos uh, ensued. And so for me, you know, I don't know if I necessarily see uh, any problems with the crew itself, but it sounds like this may be a system issue. If the person who is driving has access to the MDT, which maps them in, I have several problems with that that I'm going to talk about kind of like right off the bat really quick. Uh, And that is that if you're driving, your focus needs to be on driving. Uh, Code three is dangerous. It doesn't matter how you cut it. If you're going to get in an accident in EMS, uh, more often than not, it ends up being during driving. That's our most dangerous spot, that and working on the highways. That is dangerous to us. And so the person who's driving needs to be able to focus on what's around them with somebody else saying, hey, that stop sign is ahead. You're going to turn right because that way, that way their eyes are always focused out. So having an MDT that points towards the driver 
and the drivers essentially ex- expected to map themselves in, yeah. it kind of causes chaos. Yeah. And if you had a system where, hey, look, the passenger maps in and the MDT faces the passenger, uh, this problem that we're trying to talk about right now wouldn't have happened. It wouldn't have mattered what was said over the radio because you'd have the person who was sitting in the chair would be looking over at the MDT and being like, okay, that's where we need to be and mapping the other person in. And then when we went to drive out, they would already know exactly where they are because they just mapped the other person in and now they're driving out. So nice. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah. So that that's kind of the way uh, I I look at it. So are there any crew factors that could have made them culpable to some degree? Like, was this a crew problem? Um, I, I, I mean, you can always say like there are a way to mitigate other people's problems. But I think the big thing we need to focus on is that there there is a system there are some system changes out there that I feel are the best solution to this. Yeah. Instead of saying like, instead of putting on the crew to be like, Hey crew compensate for bad things in the system. What we need to look at is like, Hey system, let's make sure the crew doesn't have to compensate for us. That's how it should be looked at. Nice. No, I, I I like that. I, I, and I think you bring up a really valid point. Like if you're driving, you really should just be focused on driving. And I say that like yeah. fully admitting, like I, I've been in an ambulance where like we're down charts and I'm sitting in the driver's seat and like, I'm like, uh, there's one computer and I'll need it. Uh, so like, fin- yeah, you finish charting, like keep your eye out when we approach an intersection, but like, I- I'll look at the map and see where we go. And that's like, that's not the safest thing to do. And like, and so it's a really good reminder, like, yeah, no, like quote three driving should really be driving. And the person who's sitting in the passenger seat, like probably shouldn't be charting. They actually should be mapping. Like not to say that that's happening here, but, uh, you know, in my own, right. <laughs> my own practice. So I don't know. I've just, I've, I've, I've known amazing paramedics, uh, who have been caught in the situation where they're trying to map and drive at the same time and had really terrible things happen. So yeah, yeah I've just, yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan of any system that requires that. It, no, exactly. Um, yeah. Okay. So. Well, um, all right. So let's get into the arrival uh, and keep the fun moving because the next thing that happens is they arrive to a large crowd of like 30 or so bystanders who are surrounding yeah. a patient. And it's, I guess, intense would be the best word for it. This is a, and there was a significant impact to patient care to essentially like the only. Hold on. There was a significant impact to patient care from this factor because uh, essentially the only th- assessment that Grumpy was able to like accomplish prior to the fire department arriving was to, like to be able to check a pulse. And I, yeah. I'm going to throw this out there like I don't like that. And I don't like that. I like really don't like that. The only thing that the crew was able to do on the scene was get a pulse. But I can tell you mm-hmm. this, like the crew fucking hated that, too. They wanted nothing right. more than to be able to like swoop in and do their care. But from their perspective, this scene was incredibly volatile. Yeah. And, and here's kind of my thing is I know there's a ton of people that are like, they should have staged outside this scene until it was safe by, by cops. Yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe that's true, but I wasn't there. And it's kind of one of those things that like, and I hate to say this, and I know there's safety heads out there that won't agree, but safety is subjective. It is is what is safe and what is not safe is subjective now there are certain things that are probably objectively unsafe like there are certain like hey uh there's a burning building but there's someone inside do you run to the burning building without ppe no objectively that's fucking stupid but crowds are dynamic 
and they're variable and it's hard to say uh like what specific actions that could or should have been taken uh because we didn't see or interact like with this crowd and i've been on scenes where crowds are incredibly helpful like I, I've been in those scenes where it's like, like I, it was actually, I was working standby at a racing event with cars and, uh, <laughs> it was, it was, it was incredible. We had an event and people like a crowd chimed in to help. They made the route clear for us to get to the patient. It was great, but I've been in other events where the crowd is not helpful and they're drunk and they're disorderly and all those things. I mean, in this case, the crowd was, was both one part helpful, one part not. I mean, we did have at one point someone finally full Nelson, the other guy off the patient, which was <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> which was, yeah. I mean, extreme, yeah. but you know what? probably helpful because now I don't have to fight that guy. Cause it looks like a fight was the only way that guy was going to get off the guy. Yeah. Uh, and then you had an old man who they recruited to help kind of move the, the rest of the crowd around. Like that was amazing too. And so there are ways that crowds can be helpful. So no, you have to address it. Like, unfortunately on a case by case basis, I don't think you just pull up to a scene and say, well, there's lots of people not going into that. I mean, like that's yeah. not necessarily fair. So unless you're like, Hey, hey if you want to see them throwing beer bottles at the ambulance as you arrive. Yeah. Back out. That's objective. But, um, subjectively yeah the scenes are scenes differ from time to time so yeah. it is hard to write an appropriate protocol for all things yeah i think you really bring up a really good point you know like a crowd is sort of its own individual you know like it it has its own right. temperament it had its own factors and it's based on like things we just really can't you can't really see until you really interact with them like now if yeah like you said if they show if you show up and they're throwing beer bottles. Well, then the, like, it's fucking easy. Yeah. You leave, you run away and you wait until yeah. they're not there anymore or, or somebody's moved them out. But in a scene like this, where it's like, I, I don't know, there, there wasn't anything clearly right off the bat that said yes or no. And so like, I, yeah, it's, it's hard to say like well, what they should have done because I didn't act at that individual crowd, you know? So it's, it's really hard to kind of to, to weigh in on this aspect of it, uh, except just to acknowledge like, yeah, I don't know. I wasn't there. It sounds terrifying. The things that happened sound really hard and difficult to kind of ass like to suss your way through, you know, because like there's so many factors that go into it, like the individual providers and their like response, like interactions with the crowd, you know, like there are people that you and I both know who wouldn't be like who who would be terrible. It, it, like in any crowd, <laughs> like trying to manage it. And then there are people who would be like, who could be like, who could have tricks or whatever, but who knows if they would work? I, I guess my point is, is like people will have opinions on what they would or wouldn't do, but like, you're not the providers who were there and, and I'm not the provider who was there. And so like, I, I can't, I, I don't think we could ever make any recommendations like, well, they should have said this or should have done this. Um, but what I can acknowledge is that they were there. They did the things that they thought were appropriate. And I don't necessarily disagree. Um, and these, but this factor of this scene aspect just adds so much extra pressure, which really does like really can like significantly impact the calls. Um, like this is already at a time they're like in, you know, they're going through, they're describing like stress induced time dilation. They're like, it felt like sure. forever. It wasn't that long or it was long. Like it, they, there's mm -hmm. no basis for time because of the adrenaline. So yeah. then they, so, but the fire department arrives, they move into the ambulance, they get O2 and the assessment starts. Um, 
in that crowded ambulance. So, Chris, do you have thoughts on this portion? Yeah. So there are some things that, that uh, about this call we do need to bring up. And I mentioned it earlier, uh, and that's going to be evaluating skin signs in someone who is not a uh, 20 year old white mannequin. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, as it turns out, there are other skin colors aside from white. Uh, so a lot of the training that we have is based on the white skin tone. And there are skin signs that are going to show up a lot easier in white skin uh, than skin of a different color. And so when you have people of color that you're going to be assessing, which is going to be a lot of patients, you really need to be aware of what to look for and how things can look differently. So for example, pale skin is not going to show up as well, uh, especially if you're used to looking at white skin, you've been trained on looking at white skin, you're not, it's not going to be as prevalent in someone who has a skin color that you know, isn't white. And so you need to look at some other things. And one tip is to check mucous membranes. So a good place to look is going to be like the buccal membranes where you can actually see difference in skin color, which it should be a nice pink on everybody inside the patient's mouth. Yeah. And if you look at things like a nail bed color. Nail bed color is a really good thing uh, to look at because uh, nail beds uh, by and large are a good indicator uh, if you have uh, peripheral perfusion. So checking the nail beds is one way to get around uh, skin uh, pigment uh, differences. So yeah, it's, it is one of those things where, yeah, you, you cannot be a solid provider and ignore the fact that people have different skin color. So uh, learn up on it and, and be familiar with what you're going to see there. Another thing that I really liked about this call is I, I just, I loved it. But to start with the simple fixes to identify problems. So they started bagging the patient and it wasn't working, right? Yeah. So they loosened the chest straps on the uh, on the spider straps of the backboard. Fucking amazing. That's awesome. <laughs> like how many times would you know, like like how often do providers just chase their fucking tails trying to find the, you know, the deeper, more complicated solution to this and God, you know, end up decompressing someone who doesn't need it. You know, like, uh, okay, <laughs> exactly. that might be a little far, but still, still. Yeah, 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 no, but. Or just calling the code. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just what, that's what, of course, yeah, the patient raises their arm and goes like, I'm not dead. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not dead yet. Bring out your dead. Uh, but anyway, yeah, yeah no, I, uh, but I really appreciate that yeah. uh, in this call where they just like, yeah, let's loosen up the straps and holy shit, things work. Yeah, no, I, I think you bring up really good points um, and, and, and good, uh, you know, really good assessment uh, things that these guys did. Um, one of the things I also want to bring up is that like, yeah, there wasn't one person sort of directing everything, but I do like that they were still calling out and they still had realms of control it wasn't just a free-for-all there were people who were reporting mm -hmm. to the the two ambulance medics and the two ambulance medics were like calling things out to each other and keeping each other in the in the thing uh in the know yeah. and so i think that was a really good thing uh to do and it, the assessment happened and 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 uh the initial treatments were started while things were being found and being taken care of so i thought those were good things too mm -hmm. um which brings us over to the airway piece. And it was pretty obvious early on that like, this is a patient whose airway and breathing were totally compromised. And I wholeheartedly agree with Grumpy's decision to want to intubate this patient. But there were some things that happened before the intubation attempt that I noticed. And a couple things that, that, that happened during, which I feel contributed to the failure. And there's one specific technique for intubating, which may have been helpful to the call that we'll I'll, I'll talk about here. Um, okay. So we're right at the part where Grumpy Bear is about to intubate. They've taken the time to pre-oxygenate the 
patient with both the BVM and a nasal cannula. They've drawn up their meds. Uh, they've got out the ET tube, the 10cc syringe, a stylet, a bougie, backup airway. They have the end title thing on already. And they see the wall suction next to them and assume it's working. Um, which uh. then, you know, when it's time, but, you know, like, hey, I, I'll be honest, I've done the same thing. It just never like it's never bit me in the ass, you know, prior to actually like really taking the time to like make sure, you know, like airway intubation. So like, uh, yeah, right. I've, I've I, I recognize this move because I've made it. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, so then when it's time, they pop off the C collar, which good job. And they use their DL soup scope to go for it have the perfect view but they can't pass the cord so so a couple things here they are using a different stylet than the like gray adult standard that i'm used to seeing and that it's, it's really the only one that i've ever seen uh this one yeah. apparently is like well, then the pediatric like green no, one is usually an adult yeah. and then a ped okay this one is apparently some sort of like 30 in one stylet thing like it apparently can like unfold into the length of like a walking cane and it's molded into like a variety of shapes so you can like triple it down in case the local vet calls and <laughs> usually innovate a horse yeah. the style will work for that as well yeah I mean sounds like it uh, yeah. some of this I, if you need to innovate your patient with a garden hose this stylet is the one to use but, but I, I guess there are some perks in that it allows for like better manipulation of the tube from like outside the tube like and there's like a little thing that you can slide down which stops it from going past the murphy's eye on this uh on the et tube which the murphy's eyes and and that that might be something that happened here it may have moved or migrated down farther which could have prevented it from passing or you know made it harder to pass but the thing is it sounds like a cool device but you have to know how to use it. And Grumpy says that the first hands-on training they got to cover like all of those features happened with the cloud yeah. keeper after this call. So, Oh, good. There's Great. that piece. <laughs> That's a good time to review it. Yep. Um, it could also be that the tip of the tube just got hung up on the vocal cords. Um, and what the medic did was, you know, close to the same advice that we've gotten, you know, that quarter clockwise turn, uh, twisting the yeah. tube to see if you can get it back. But you know, whatever their, their technique may have worked here but then that hits that next frustration in the attempt that ett bvm connector piece which chris as you said like yeah they pop off in the packaging and it's really easy to miss and it sucks so much when you make that discovery with the tube that you can't bvm uh through sitting perfectly in the patient's cords um so yeah my advice is hey knowing this everyone who's listened to the show now knows this check Check to make sure it's there before the intubation to avoid this unfriend surprise. You know, a checklist of some co- sort may be really helpful here because. You know, yeah. yeah. But question here, though, do you think they had the tube in the right spot at first? I mean, the patient's ETCO2 was 11. Uh, did they see the tube go through the cord? Did they check lung sounds? Because I'll tell you, like it sounds like they got in the right spot based on kind of some other findings that they had and initially vomit going around the tube as opposed to through it. Although that changed. Yeah, no, I am really glad you caught on to those things too. Here's the answer. I don't know, at least not at this point, because I mean, later it's pretty obvious that it's no longer in the right place, but yeah, like right. for this initial part, like, I don't know. Cause yeah, the, so the number of 11, millimeters of mercury is really really low and i don't right. i can't really explain that because like the vitals don't necessarily make sense for that low of a number to me um and what i mean is like you know the, 
As we know, there's several things that contribute to good exhaled carbon dioxide. One, you need lungs, sure. which allow your blood to offload that CO2 so that you can exchange, like you can exhale it. And two, you uh, need cells producing the CO2. And three, you need blood to move that CO2. Um, so if the patient's blood pressure were like low or they arrested, then like the tube could be where it needs to be. And there just isn't enough CO2 being made to really like generate a good number when they're breathing through those lungs. But I, I, the patient's vitals just really don't explain that number for me because at the time they, they had a good heart rate. They had a decent blood pressure. Um, so th that like low number really kind of points me more towards the direction of no. But then the hard part is like if the capnography waveform was described as uniform so that each breath delivered to the patient when their check-in generated basically the same number and it looked the same, then it, it, it might be in the right spot because if it were in the esophagus, which 11 totally kind of makes it sound like it could be, especially if the guy has been, you know, drinking beer and eating a bunch of food and, you know, and then like came out and got hit by a car. Uh, Right. Wait, which to, to flesh that out, uh, you can have an entitled CO2 reason, uh, an entitled CO2 reading from the esophagus, particularly if you've had carbonated beverages. Yeah. Go ahead. Like then I would expect that number to be 11, but then to like go down and the waveform shrink and then disappear like really quickly, yeah, pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah. And it, so it didn't. And that's weird. But, uh, you know, Chris, you made another excellent observation. They did not check the lung sounds at this moment. And if I have the deal, if I have the details correct, and if they didn't, then that definitely should have happened here because like, I know I typically say like, yeah, t trust 10 title CO2 readings over like, you know, someone saying like, yeah, lung sounds are good. But in this case, like I, yeah, definitely do both. Like you would definitely mm -hmm. want to make sure that both happened, which then brings us to the next issue, which is vomit starting to come up. Now, originally, it wasn't seen in the tube, uh, just sort of around the tube. But Grumpy, who is holding the tube in one hand, realizes that the suction catheter on the wall is essentially like decoration only. Like, like taking a <laughs> bite into one of those like plastic decorative fruit things. Fuck you and your fake nice. fruit and, and, and apples. Like, who are you? Yeah, yeah, your wax bullshit. Uh, yeah, because I've tried to eat those and uh, they do not taste like grapes or apples. Anyway. So they take it upon themselves to find the suction unit and they shouldn't have like they had one job and they were the keeper of the tube. And if that's your job, that has to get a hundred percent of your attention. This is, this is not one where you can split attention because you'll move your hand and try it, right? Try it right now. Hold something with your left hand, knowing that it can't move and then try reaching around for shit. I guarantee right. your hand will move. And I say this because like I've fallen into the trap and the trap is, I think I need to move fast. I think I know where the thing I need is and I will therefore find it the fastest. Therefore, like that's my task. I need to go like, I need to do these two things so that I can resolve this quickly. Yeah. But yeah, it, this is a, this is a trap. Don't fall into it. You, if either you are holding the tube or you are assigning someone else, like do not let this tube move. I need to grab stuff. Or just, you know, hey, secure it, supervisor, get the thing. Oh, yeah. Like if there's no t vomit coming up through the tube, then secure it and then yeah. suction around it. So, right. Um, I'm going to point this out. Uh, this, this intubation went exactly as planned. And here's what I mean by that. 
this system, I had mentioned this earlier, but the attitude towards intubation, the equipment that they're given and the equipment they're not given, um, basically this, this is how this system is designed to make intubations go poorly. Because the attitude to me, and given I'm not in this system, I haven't spoken with this medical director because I, like Spencer, am not quite that famous, but I will be on Tuesday. Spencer will be one day before I will. Um, but uh, I, uh, this attitude towards innovation is setting people up to fail. I mean, it's basically saying, basically their attitude towards innovation is, I mean, if you can get it, great, but otherwise, I gel, I gel, I gel. And mm-hmm. that's just going to set you up uh, for failure and they're given a DL, not a VL. Now here's the thing. If you go and you Google, uh, you know, and you start Googling, uh, the first thing you'll find is you actually find a study that's published in the, in the Lancet, which is a reputable journal, uh, that says, uh, Hey, there actually isn't a, a big difference in video laryngoscopy versus DL. Uh, and people are like, Oh, there you go. But if you look at it, that's just amongst infants in a NICU. And, um, if you, the next one after that is a little more telling in that, uh, shows and that's a, it's on PubMed and it's basically video laryngoscopy is associated with improved first pass, uh, attempts. And that's a very in-depth study with many, many patients, uh, over the span of uh, three years it was conducted. And so, nice. uh, yeah. And so it, it showed that there was a, uh, a substantial increase uh, in first pass success DL versus VL. You had direct laryngoscopy first pass success was 63%. VL was 80. So it, it's, yeah, it's substantially helpful. So yeah, that's, and, and th- that to me is, is pretty important. And so that's kind of my biggest here, right here. My problem here is this seems like there is a big push to move away from endotracheal tubes uh, in this case. And the way you have have to innovate the way you have to train to innovate is it's twofold uh, if you want your innovations because uh, here's the thing a failed innovation can have a negative impact on a patient okay yeah. um, and Spencer and I have talked about this time and time again because here's the thing uh, the reason innovations are such a dicey thing and the reason medical directors worry about them is because they don't want to end up with hypoxic patients in the ER because someone dicked around with the two for too long and didn't just go to a to an SGA and I understand that but but here's what you do. You train to lessen the result of a poor, or to lessen the impact of a poor outcome. Uh, IVs, great example here. Uh, have you ever heard, Spence, yeah. any controversy over, uh, any significant controversy uh, over pre-hospital IVs that you know of? No. No. Yeah. Never heard it. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's out there. I'm sure if you Google, someone will have an opinion on it, but not near as big as pre-hospital uh, innovation. And the reason being is because if you fuck up an IV, so what? I mean, maybe you don't get the medication in that you wanted to get in, but you didn't make the patient any worse. You know, in, in other words, taking away your ability to start an IV wouldn't make things better. Yeah. Okay. Um, because that's because like there's not there's not a detriment to starting one and missing. You know, either you missed and you didn't get it or you're not allowed to start them and you still don't get it. There's no. Yeah, it, it's and, there's not you're not yeah. making things worse by allowing people to at least try. And I, I hear um, people like weighing and being like, well, I mean, like there's still infections and stuff like, yeah, there are risks. But like no one is right. missing an IV and suddenly like the patient's like up. Oh, that's dead. And now I'm dead because you missed this. Like another. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that, yeah, it, it's not happening. Uh, innovation, not not the same. And so what we need to do is what we really need to focus on is you need to have an environment 
in your agency that says this, hey, we oxygenate and ventilate patients. So the first thing we're going to do before we even think about innovating somebody is we're going to see if we can get them oxygenated. And if we can get them oxygenated, uh, then we're going to do that. We're going to get them oxygenated prior to the innovation attempt. And we're going to try and denitrogenate, denitrogenate those lungs so that if our innovation attempt takes too long or it isn't successful, we don't cause a hypoxic brain injury. Yeah. And that's the way you start. And then when you go to innovate, it's you're using bougies. You're training on this constantly. Like you're using the you're using the bougie or or uh, the trend the TTI the transtracheal inducer, uh, which is basically just a long co hanger coated in plastic that uh, that you pass through first and you guide it over the top of that. You're doing that. You're using video laryngoscopy. You have the tools to make this easy, and you have the the training and the step by step procedure to make this easy and to do it. And to where you're either going to get it, or if you don't get it, you don't deoxygenate your patient. So placing an SGA is then kind of the next thing to do. If you can't uh, do that, then you start working on things like a cricothyrotomy, those kind of things. Like if you're not able to get the patient oxygenated prior to innovation, then you start looking at things like crash airways. But it just seems like this is kind of one of those systems where I almost look at it and I'm like, hey, if you're not going to train people how to do this well, then don't fucking give it to them. Like, I mean, I, yeah. I think that's, I still, I still think that's bad, but basically what you're doing is you're giving them something that you know is going to fail. Like you're saying like, Hey, I know it's in your scope. So I guess you can do it with these things, but gosh, I, I really think you shouldn't, but, but here you go. You're kind of setting someone up to where if they ever have to use that, it's going to go poorly. And then of course you're going to get statistics that say, Hey, my, our first pass to 10 rate is low. It's like, well, yeah, yeah. of course it is. <laughs> you set them up to be low. Yeah. So yeah, I think, I think uh, with this system, and the the attitude it has toward innovation, this innovation went exactly to plan. Yeah. I, so I, yeah. I one additional thing that I would add to the system, and I completely agree, uh, is mm -hmm. a checklist because you know what? Like right. intubations, absolutely intubations are fun, they're sexy, they're intense, and uh it's really easy to quickly kind of come like, all right, let's do it. I'm ready to do it. And to like sort of uh Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? You look at this section and you're like, yeah, it's there. Like you rush yeah. through that sort of like preemptive list and you miss those little minutia because you're, you know, you're like, yeah. Yeah. So a checklist where you kind of like, hey, this is an intense thing. We're going to take some time and make sure like, hey, the suction is there and it turns on uh, and the little right. you know piece is connected uh, on top of the end title or on top of the ETT and all of those things that that makes this m a much smoother process. And there's less speed bumps that are encountered because there's less problems. Right. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, no, I think that's a really good piece. There, there's another piece that I uh, regarding the system that I think we should touch on later. But system aside at this moment, there is one intubation technique I think might have been really like useful in this call, and that is the SALAD technique for intubation. So SALAD is an acronym uh, and it stands for Suction Assisted Laryngoscopy Airway Decontamination. It's a, a, a brainchild of uh, Dr. DeCanto of DeCanto Suction Catheter fame. Um, and it's a really good way to intubate even if patients, even in patients that do, like really don't all of it, like need a bunch of vomit suctioned out of their mouth, you know, at least at the start. Um, so basically, here's how this works. The setup is the same. You do all the same things you do for any other intubated patient, except this time the suction isn't just sort of in case shit happens. It's an active participant in the intubation process. You start the intubation by introducing that rigid suction catheter into the mouth with that suction going 
at, while you're inserting the, lar- uh, the laryngoscope into the patient's mouth as well, but you kind of want to keep it like more midline on the tongue. And then you suction your way down through the mouth into the hypopharynx until you lovingly jam that suction catheter into the proximal esophagus where it will just continuously suction stuff, uh, you know, whatever is going to be coming up from the stomach. Then you just kind of shift that catheter over to the far right of the patient's mouth with your uh, laryngoscope and kind of pin it there. Um, And now you have space to actually do the intubation and the suctioning is happening in the esophagus and you should have a clear view of the cords, hopefully, and plenty of room to finish that intubation. Um, Yeah. So here's the nice thing. Uh, Now, the stylet and the little connector piece might have still been a problem for the call, but at least with this technique, the suction would have been turned on before the event, allowing that earlier discovery. And it also may have really just helped here in keeping in being able like in letting them keep the tube um, or, you know, if they were going to try again. Uh, check out Life in the Fast Lane for the uh, like uh, salad technique. There's an embedded video which goes through the like technique a little more and gives like a yeah a more educational and detailed breakdown uh, for everybody. Um, so yeah, but this crew went with the backup eye gel, and that was also a nightmare because like as you know after like until the vomit receded, it it seemed like it worked. And then it came back. I So here's the thing with the eye gel. I tried to look up, Chris, uh, if there were like, hey, are there problems with the eye gel with vomit? Because this isn't the first time that I've heard this problem. I haven't really encountered any like studies or any really big like flags in my Googling. Um, but I did find a video in which uh, a different paramedic for a different service, like as a, you know, for their own service, put out a video with sort of like some flags of like, hey, these get really tricky with like uh, w- these can get really tricky with vomit. There's some tips and tricks for seeding the thing so that it sits better because um, they they can wander um, through a transport. Uh, I haven't, I don't have much experience with eye gels in adult patients. Um, Chris, do you have any, do, have you encountered any struggles with this? Have you heard? Yeah. So when it comes to eye gels, like I, I don't know. So, so here's the thing. I, I've placed maybe two eye gels, I think, in the field, and they both worked fine for me. Like, I had no problems with them. They worked great. I got entitled. The patient seemed ventilated and oxygenated, and, and it was fine. But I've also been around long enough. Uh, I, I started out with the combi tube. I moved oh, on. Yeah. You know, my career then moved through, yeah, moved through, like, the King Airway, mm-hmm. and now I'm on to eye gels. And I'll tell you this. what I The issues I've had with the combi tube and the King Airway is that sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. And what I've heard for each of those things is, hey, they're just as good as an ET tube, you know, like, or better, place it, place it, place it. We shouldn't even have ET tubes with these amazing miracle devices around. And it never turns out to be true. Uh, And so I think we're kind of at that phase with the iGel now is, all I'm hearing is like, oh, it's good as an ET tube, but I'm also hearing from other fighters in the field who have, who have placed them that have had issues, particularly with vomiting airways. My understanding of the eye gel is the way it's supposed to work is that distal end is supposed to soften and conform uh, to to the airway, specifically to the trachea. And it has, and the assumption is that when it has failed by providers, and like, don't write this down. This is just other providers I've talked to. This is yeah. not an official deal at all. But they said, hey, I don't think that particular mechanism works well when it's a messy ass airway. 
airway because I've tried to place these things with messy ass airways and all I get is a two, you know, all I get is an eye gel full of vomit and it, and it doesn't seem to ever seal. And I just sit there and fuck with an eye gel for the rest of the thing. And it's not as good as a tube. So I'm skeptical. I'm always, and admittedly, maybe that's an unfair bias that I have. Feel free to comment. I know you guys will. Um, but I'm skeptical of SGAs because it all there always kind of seems to be this revelation later on as the usage of them gets mature. It's like, ah, it's not a tube. And <laughs> yeah, dude. So to yeah. me, like, yeah. So to me, the, the ideal scenario when it comes to eye gels is uh, is this is I don't honestly I don't want to talk about eye gels. I don't want to talk about yeah. eye gels. I don't want to talk about tubes. I want to talk about and what people should be talking about is not eye gels, not tubes, but ventilating and oxygenating the patient. Yeah. And avoiding hypoxic brain injuries. That's your discussion to have. How are we, are we oxygenating and ventilating our patients good? Uh, yes, no. And it turns out that we do this poorly when we go to intubation and we have these poor outcomes with intubation. Okay, pick that apart. Figure out why. In this system, I can guarantee you it's because they have a system that doesn't like to innovate. And so they set people up for failure. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, yeah, I mean, yeah, have a discussion around whether or not you're oxygenating and ventilating good and then see how these tools can help. Don't sit there and, and like, well, is this tool good for every scenario? No, it's not. Because you know what? A wrench is not good for every, every scenario. Yeah. Can you drive a nail with a wrench? You sure can, but it's better if you do it with a hammer. Yeah. So anyway, that's, I guess I guess that's my my thought on, on iGels. No, that, I think that's a really good thing. And I, I, I'm going to put this out there. I, I, you know, I, how, uh, to those who've used iGels, do you find it's like a wrench with a hammer or is it like a, a wrench versus a hammer versus, you know, with a nail or like what's your experience? I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let us well, know. And, but I, and I'm sure it depends. I'm sure it depends on, on the scenario. There are probably some places where it, the wrench was needed and it was the wrench. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. well then let's go on. I, I think you bring up a really good point because it's like, Hey, is the oxygenation and ventilation happening appropriately at the time that the supervisor was like, Hey, we need to transport. Because remember, we have an airway now with wet lung sounds. We do have end tidal CO2 finally, but like Grumpy doesn't really like this airway and thinks it does need to be replaced with an ETT, um, which they feel, again, given their view of the cords, they had. But their supervisor says, no, uh, you guys need to go. So this is a really big point. This is the like, hey, do we stay yeah. and, can, you know. Uh, work on this airway more or do we get going towards the trauma hospital uh, Chris where do you fall what do you think uh, so there's kind of two factors here that that I think is probably going to pop into people's minds you have the clinical and you have the operational side of things um, so I'm going to speak just clinically and I'm going to kind of ignore the whole supervisor factor because that's kind of something that's hard to speak to yeah. not working in that system sure. you know what I mean because like because clinically, if you should ignore your supervisor, I don't know what to recommend to you. You know, like, hey, tell your supervisor to fuck off. You may not have a job tomorrow, but clinically, but clinically you'll be correct. Uh, so I'm just going to speak clinically and I'm going to ignore the supervisor part of this. Yeah. Um, and that is this. So clinically speaking, do you stay in play or do you roll and go? Um, I think... There are there are kind of some good points to either side. So staying and playing and trying to get this airway established in an environment where you're not bumping down the road on a patient who you do not want to get hypoxic does have some merit. But at the same time, we're talking about a brain bleed and that's the fix or a potential brain bleed, I should say. I don't know. I'm not there. But uh, and I don't have my portable CT scanner uh, or radiologist. on hand. But um, you don't. Yeah. What kind I, of system I, are you working I, in? <laughs> and some mom paw system for sure. Um, but anyway, so, uh, yeah, well we have, we have radiologists, but they're like secondhand radiologists. Oh, uh, gotcha. anyway, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, they're like the, the cheap disposable kind. Uh, but anyway, so uh, yeah, so you have... Right. So the key is this person does need to get to the hospital and quick. And so while you don't want to be hypoxic, you do want uh, you do want to come to the hospital uh, at the same time. Um, I would say if you have an airway that's not good and you need to establish one, I think one of kind of the uh, the missteps here is that. So personally, what would I do? I would I would probably really work on the airway in route. And I know there's going to be people who are like, oh, you can't intubate a moving ambulance. Uh, you can. And I've intubated pretty well in the back of a moving ambulance. It's not the terrible, it's not the terrible environment you think it is. Um, but also, I think one of the mistakes was, if I recall correctly, the person who was driving was the better innovator of the two, right? Yes. The person So driving. I think this is... Yeah, I think this is probably, you know, if you look at this guy, the big thing wrong with this guy wasn't IV access, which is what the person who was in the back was good at. It was airway. And this is one of the things where I'm like, if there's nothing else to do on this guy but airway and get him to the hospital, put the airway person in the back. Oh, yeah. That's like if, if that's if that's kind of their if that's kind of their wheelhouse. Have them get in the back and see if that will work. Uh, and you know, maybe attempt another ETT or, or, uh, or you know, or the, go from there. Yeah, or it worked, you know, or the, you know, IGEL works for the rest of the transport, which obviously it didn't happen in this situation, but you know, like it, right. it either it works or you have the airway person back there ready to, to who, yeah. who knows who, who is comfortable with that, who feels like they could be successful. Um, right. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point, man. Um, yeah, so, uh, but it happened the other way. They, uh, the, uh, grumpy got up and drove, uh, and then we encountered that driving error. Oops. Eh, fun. Yeah. And then a crike happened and I wholeheartedly agree. This does seem like a, an extreme step. This is one of those where, mm. you know, like, I, I don't know. We, you, it, you know, like you go like, whoa was this necessary uh given the description earlier but like mm -hmm. here's the situation uh as i see it and i understand it and again like we're hearing this you know third person uh so this is here are the indications for a cricothyrotomy it's you can't intubate and you can't ventilate and, and right. that, that's really it. That, there it is. And and they're over uh, for a surgical cricothyrotomy. And for most of my protocols, the patient's over the age of eight uh, because there's some right. structural differences for kids or for pediatric patients younger than that. Um, so, yeah, that's that's it, though. Like you can't intubate this patient or, or get an SGA uh, or and you can't ventilate them otherwise because they need right. that airway. Um, so. If that's the situation they were in, which from the sound of it, they were, they, you know, they had the eye gel that was filling once again with vomit that they were trying to suction. They felt like they were mm -hmm. unable to get these, you know, the vomit to recede. And they knew that the patient needed an airway. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what steps they took uh, prior to doing the crike besides suctioning. Like if they decided to, you know, like, ah, let me look and see if I can intubate this person or if they were like, yeah, fuck it. There's too much vomit in this airway. I can't suction it. We, this patient needs an airway. We're going to the crike. I, I, I can't really fault them for that decision. Um, especially if they got it, if they were able to intubate, then like, yeah, I mean, you know, if you, if you feel like you were being successful with an intubation, then, you know, do the intubation. Don't jump right to the crike. But like, yeah, if you're at a spot where you're like, mm, nope, being yeah, back. I, I would yeah. agree with that. If your intubation was successful, don't crack them arbitrarily. I think that sounds like a good piece <laughs> like, of advice. Yeah, yeah. This is the kind of things that I bring to the show, man. <laughs> yeah, this, this neck needs a hole. Let's put it in there. But 
you know, crikes do have some danger uh, and they're not something that you really want to kind of like, you know, throw out willy nilly. So, you know, Mm -hmm. some of those dangers are like, yeah, you're going to be cutting into the person's neck. You've got to be familiar with the landmarks. You got to know what structures are around the neck and be really comfortable and familiar with this procedure. Because if you if you fuck this up, you can you you could kill somebody. Um, well, it's one of those things where it takes time to do. It, it, you're doing you're doing. But Bart, like, like, don't don't dress this up as any other way than either you're performing surgery in the field because it's exactly what you're doing. This is a surgical intervention is a surgical airway. You're performing field surgery. It takes time to do it right. And if you waste that time, then they're hypoxic the entire time you're doing it. And there are some things that can go wrong if you don't do the procedure well. You can, there's the false trachea, you know, like the, where you think you're in the trachea, but you're actually not. You can cut through yeah, the which trachea. Which happens way more than you might think it is. Oh, yeah. You might think it does. Oh, yeah. Um, or you can, you know, you, you get a little, uh, you can go through the trachea and, and, and nick the esophagus, and that's also a yeah. bad day. So, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Uh, so this is, you know, it's recognized that this is a dangerous complicate, like, this is a dangerous procedure, but this is also like a really, really, really necessary procedure for everybody to be comfortable, like, to be familiar with for a situation just like this where you find yourself like oh fuck no airway and i can't fix it so so to answer the question on this call should this person have placed the crike or not i think it kind of relies on data we don't have and it kind of goes it goes like this i mean here's where i stand look if you're looking uh, i mean from the perspective of the person in the back and that's the information we don't have we don't have their perspective leading up to the crike and that is this if you have an eye gel that has vomit coming out of the eye gel okay it's not good that's not a good airway if you have vomit coming out of that tube that's not a good airway okay if you're looking at this patient be like this is going to be a difficult tube because the other person who's supposed to be good at tubes didn't get it mm-hmm. and i'm not as good as they are um the patient's not being ventilated. They're not being oxygenated. I'm going to imagine they're not being ventilated appropriately or oxygenated with vomit coming out of the middle of the eye gel. Then honestly, I'm going to say this. I'm pro crike for this patient. Yeah. This is, this is your quintessential crike patient. You have an airway that's really unaccessible through, uh, through the oropharynx. And so you make a new hole and that's the case. Now, if you have somebody that, you know, they, I mean, if that wasn't the case, if you were able to clear the eye gel, cause the other thing I would say, it's worth trying to suction the eye gel. Cause it could be that you have residual vomit from the oropharynx as you pass the eye gel. Mm. But if you're suctioning that vomit out and it keeps coming, then no, it's not good. Yeah. But if you suction it out and it's clear and now it's good, then yeah, I'm going to keep trying to work the eye gel. But if in this case, like if they, if they didn't try suctioning the eye gel first, then I would say, Hey, maybe you jump the gun to the crike. Yeah. But Hey, if you try to suction the eye gel and it's still not working and you believe your innovation success rate is going to be very low and you have the crike as an option, I, that's what it's there for. Yeah. I, no, I think that's perfectly phrased. And my understanding is that all the suctioning was attempted, but I, you know, I, again, that's, yeah. that's what I was told third hand. So cool. Uh, so it sounds like we're kind of at the end of the call here, uh, where the supervisor confronts them with some criticism. Uh, what, what was the criticism? Uh, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So the cloud keeper had several items that they were concerned about, which they brought up with the crew and then like to the clinical educator at cares a lot castle. And here's what they are. Uh, they arrived and they said like, Hey, there were too many people in the back of the ambulance when I got there. Um, I think this is a sort of unfair criticism given this situation. And, you know, like, yes, this is a crowded ambulance, but given the situation that they didn't witness, 
I I have a hard time faulting the crew for for this. Like ideally, no. Oh, I, yeah. yeah I, like everyone knows. Hundred percent. Yeah. Ideally, you don't have five people and no working room. But you know, like if the ambulance is a safe place to work on the patient while police do their thing, then like. Yeah, uh, ideals out the window. So it's kind of like this. It's kind of like when you pull, like when you're looking for a parking spot and you see that random Mini Cooper that for whatever reason has its tires, like its right tires right on the line of the parking spot, which makes it too small for you to park in. You're like, son of a bitch, what an asshole. But what you don't know is that before you before you got there, there was a truck that was actually taking up the whole left side of their parking space. Oh, yeah. And they were just trying to make the best of it. And now that truck has moved. So you roll up and you can't figure out why the fuck they decided to cram themselves to one side of the parking space. Well, this is, well, this is the same thing. The supervisor goes in there, doesn't see the same giant crowd, doesn't see the fact that like, hey, you don't want to work this call out in the middle of this crowd, but you do need all these people. They don't see that. They just see the Mini Cooper crammed in the back of the ambulance trying to do CPR. So not CPR, but you know what I mean? Like trying to, yeah. trying to work on this guy. Yeah. So that that's kind of what they see. They're like, what the fuck is wrong with you people? And I can understand that perspective. I think where the supervisor fails, like, hey, be curious be curious like get, give your employees some credit and be like hey this looks stupid but is there a reason it's stupid because sometimes we have to do stupid things when the situation is yet even stupider so yeah anyway yeah yeah uh, one of their other criticisms is that they, they felt like the division of labor seemed off uh, like the person on airway shouldn't have also been drawing up meds I, I, this is not an unfair it, critique it, it's not again though I, in this situation you have and they did like they tried to offload that task to the supervisor but the other people were also doing tasks like they were also doing the you know ivs the tourniqueting the assessment so those people are kind of tied up there so i like yes ideally no i wouldn't be the one setting up the airway and drawing up meds but who once the supervisor showed up then like hey can you finish drawing up the meds did happen and so I, I guess yeah. I this I don't know. I, I again agree, but also like this is this to me is the same thing with the you know Mini Cooper parked to the left. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, and so the the last piece th- that they got into was just sort of the reinforcement in the system of like, hey, don't remove the eye gel once it's in there. Do not replace the eye gel. And that's a big system push, it sounds like, from this um uh, from this system. And as we've already kind of talked and like talked about that and we've weighed in, I don't think it really needs weighing in again. Um, yeah. So yeah. Um, boom. So just kind of summarize the learning points here. Uh, when it comes to airway, you got to set yourself up for success, even in a system that doesn't. And I mean, again, I, I'm really pointing to the system on this one and its attitude towards the innovation. Uh, and the innovation went exactly to plan with, with a system like that. The innovation is going to go exactly, exactly as that system set it up to go, which was poorly. So that's, that's why this happened. Um, because honestly, it, it kind of re I mean, like, like not a lot of the moves that were made that led to the tube being dislodged. I mean, they kind of just they really spell out a like hey like this system does not focus enough on practicing performing airway maneuvers as a crew you know what i mean you had one person who was supposed to be the airway uh the the you know airway god uh going and try to do the whole thing by themselves and that's exactly what happened i mean it's exactly what happened someone tried to do the entire airway by themselves and and in spite of the fact that they're actually pretty good at airway uh, things happen that shouldn't have happened because they just, they're not training appropriately. So that that's, 
that's what happened. Uh, next step is check your equipment. I also think the system fails here because it's kind of one of those systems that's like, oh, someone should have equipment checked for you. Uh, but you need to check some stuff. Well, what stuff? Well, you know, the important stuff. Well, what's the important stuff? Well, obviously the suction, like that's important. It's like, okay, every medication, don't you check every expiration date before, uh, before each shift? Well, no, obviously that's too much. Okay. But then you go and you give an expired medication and then it's the same person is going to come back and be like, Hey, why did you check your expired meds in the morning? So I, I don't know. I don't like systems like this where it's like, you need to check your stuff, but I'm not going to tell you what you need to check. Oh yeah. No. So, and that's a really good point that, yeah. that, that I, 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 we touched on earlier, but we didn't really go into, which was like, yeah, the, there was a, the, the suction was supposed to be set up by the materials division and that but they didn't and and it didn't happen and this crew assumed like saw that it was there and like assumed it was all set up and good to go and it sounds like that's normally the case but in this case it went askew so i'm glad you brought that up too in this in this situation uh at the end here and then of course salad salad's an amazing technique uh to help it's it's a good thing to train on to actually set you up for intubation success is uh is the salad technique um and then other than that, you know, crikes. Remember that crikes are there for a reason. And when you can't oxygenate or ventilate with traditional methods for whatever reason, that's kind of what the crike is for. And so I think there's potential that the crike was totally justified, even though it did seem extreme in this scenario. But we don't really have that information yeah. to really kind of flesh that out. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think overall th- there were there were some some pretty significant speed bumps for this call. I don't know the outcome in terms of patient but, um, yeah. you know, I, I yeah, the, this was a really incredibly detailed call to uh, to kind of break down. And uh, we're glad we could bring mm-hmm. it to you guys. OK, well, you know, uh, with that, as always, everybody, thank you so much for listening to EMS 2020. This concludes a very long episode, <laughs> uh, but hopefully you guys found it interesting. Um, with that, as always, uh, each and every episode gets its own post on our social meds. So please follow us at uh, EMS 20 slash 20 on Facebook. We are at EMS 2020 show on Instagram. And if you want your call to be featured on our amazing podcast, that's going to be a quick email to EMS 2020 podcast at gmail.com. Please visit guardiancme.com. That is going to be a free CE platform that's being launched by our good friends at guardian test prep. And yeah, it's a place where you will be able to go to get free continuing education credit hours just for listening to EMS 2020. So if you go to guardiancme.com and drop your email, we will email you as soon as the platform is ready. Ready. And no, we won't. Uh, we will not spam your inbox. You'll be uh, you'll be happy to know that. Uh, and also, it should launch soon. We're hoping that. So with that, Spencer, take us out awkwardly as fuck. Care Bears stare. <laughs> I actually don't remember what they <laughs> shout, but but I do know you they know hold what? hands and their tummies light up. Which why do they? Yeah. What, hold on. What the fuck did they call it a stare when they're like tummies do the thing? That's uh, creepy as fuck. I don't know. I think someone probably wrote uh, a Care Bear stare and someone animated it coming out of their tummies and someone's like oh shit well sorry we're just gonna stick with it now. <laughs> yeah like oh it's uh yeah this was due tuesday and it's monday right. so this is it all right <laughs> we're calling it i'm done hearing your voice bye, bye.